I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. W-A-P-G, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 350. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 23rd of November, 2018. In today's episode... Two killed in a vintage plane crash, Los Angeles Fire Department helicopter pilots make a daring mountain rescue, and an Aeroflot 737 in Moscow hits a man on the runway. This, more, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, a four-star conversation. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on, flight 350 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news, and we also answer your feedback, along with some other little pearls of aviation wisdom, I'm sure. (laughs) Also with me to help me with that from somewhere near Knoxville, Tennessee. She is a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Happy Thanksgiving, or happy Black Friday, I guess it is today. Uh, yes. Glad to be here with you. Oh, sorry. Glad to be here with you all today, and uh, sorry in advance for any noise that occurs here. I'm in a uh, crowded house full of people and dogs, and uh, you can expect barking, laughing, screaming, I don't know, all of the above. All good stuff. <laughs> Looking forward to all that ambiance. And from his recording studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF, fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline, airline based in London, Captain Nick. I prefer Airling. It's nice. <laughs> airline. I don't know what that is. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> lovely to be on the show, Jeff. I think we're going to be having uh, an interesting time of it today. Uh, technical uh, aspects with notwithstanding. Yeah, well, we never have technical issues. <laughs> They'll never know. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed on the last show, a lot of the little things that I normally take out of the show, like things that I say I'm going to take care of in post, I just left them in there because I thought that it was uh, it would be interesting for our audio-only people to hear some of the uh, little foibles that uh, we make. And uh, also, I think, Captain Nick, you did something. You said something that just made it almost really impossible for me to fix it. So. Yeah, I, I tend I tend to do that because I know you don't want to anyway. I know uh, <laughs> it's too too much like hard work. <laughs> yeah, it's a labor of love though, a labor of love. Absolutely. Um. So yeah. So how is everybody? We had uh, Thanksgiving here in the United States yesterday, and uh, today is I think something that's celebrated. I'm not sure why, but 
all around the world, Black Friday, which uh, sounds like a very negative thing, but actually I think it's a positive thing for the retailers because they can go into the black, maybe, which is good. And uh, because people go and buy lots and lots of things from their establishments. And uh, But again, I, I'm not sure why the whole world kind of does the thing now, but is, is that true, uh, Nick, over in Absolutely. the Absolutely. Okay. Uh, mainly online. Uh, I mean, re, uh, the high street shops do do it, but not all of them, and it's not, certainly not embraced with the same enthusiasm that it is in the States. But it's a bit like uh, going to Hong Kong where there, there aren't a, a large number of Christians there, but they celebrate Christmas like like it's going out of fashion. <laughs> I mean, talk about over the top. And it's really just because it's a, a chance to, uh, you know, sell more goods, which is always good for the economy. Wow. Well, Liz says in Canada, Black Friday started happening there about five years ago, and now it's huge. It's huge, I tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, Steph, I'm so sorry to interrupt your Black Friday um, shopping spree. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, eager sac- to get out the there. sacrifices that I make for the show. <laughs> sorry, I got up really early and went and, uh, you know, stood in line at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, crowded in with all the people who was pushing and shoving. No, I didn't do any of that. I've okay. never done any of that and You're scaring probably me. never, never will. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in uh, Tennessee I'm with in Tennessee. Uh, yep. friends and family. <laughs> Correct. And, and so tell us how your week has gone since we've done our last show. Yeah. When did we do our last show? I don't know. I don't <laughs> Sometime last week. Last Wednesday. Week. It was Wednesday. Okay. Like a week ago, Wednesday. It's been, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I had a, um, kind of quiet weekend leading up to uh, the holidays. Um, week at work actually was not too bad or too stressful. It's only three days. And, uh, you know, it's funny leading up to the holidays, our, our appointments seem to disappear quickly because everyone wants to get in and be seen. But then actually leading up to the holidays, people realize they have things to do and obligations and reasons why they can't make it. So there end up being a fair number of cancellations. So the schedule ends up being not too crazy packed a little bit on the lighter side, if anything. And, um, yeah, got up early uh, yesterday and uh, got a four-hour drive over here to this part of Tennessee from where I live. Uh, we did that and spent the day with uh, good friends of ours, um, just enjoying the holiday and had a nice smoked turkey and uh, desserts and alcoholic beverages, and uh, it was a nice time. Now, I'm not a smoker, uh, but I thought tobacco was the material of choice. Uh, not anymore. You can you can smoke anything. Oh, really? If okay. you light if you can light them, you can smoke them, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Steph is having a great time <laughs> smoking away. Yeah. No, the turkey was delicious. Um, it was smoked in the uh, big green egg. Yeah, of all the plates <laughs> oh, yes. of food I saw, uh, yours is the one that looked the most appealing. Oh, well, I can take no credit for cooking any of that because it was all my friend Nicole. Now, no, didn't you have some uh, involvement in the preparation? No. Oh, uh, what about the, the green do beans? The beans, yeah. Oh, that's true. I did have to cut the ends off the beans. Snap the green. Snap beans. the ends off the beans. Yeah, I ended up snapping them actually, and then I yeah. ended up cutting them. I did kind of a combination. <laughs> I only got through half of the bag, and she looked at it and said, "Well, I think that's enough." And I said, "Yeah, it's a lot of green beans here. <laughs> I don't know how many people are trying to feed <laughs> a small army, apparently." So were the uh, ones that you snapped or the ones that you cut more tasty? Yeah. <laughs> don't don't, don't make any difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, trick question. Welcome to the airline culinary show. Yeah. Sorry. We talk food and beer and smoked turkeys. Well, that's food too. Mm-hmm. And smoking turkeys. Yeah. Uh, speaking of turkeys, Nick. How have you been? <laughs> well, a great introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, I was doing fine till that moment. Um, <laughs> I've actually had a very busy week, uh, most productive, which has been fabulous. Um, drove over to Salisbury Plain, uh, several hours to the west of me, uh, near Stonehenge, uh, uh, with Nev, and we interviewed Sir Richard Johns for PTUK. Uh, I managed to get a little time at the end uh, to ask him about his love of aviation history, and that that makes today's plain tale. But uh, then Nev and I joined up again, uh, this time at Loughborough, because I was up there, now that's about three and a half hours north, Uh, I was up there um, to lecture to the Royal Aeronautical Society, um, the Loughborough branch, uh, in the Loughborough University. Um, Quite an interesting place. Uh, They do a lot of aviation stuff up there, aeronautical degrees, all that. Anyway, it was a very pleasant evening. Uh, The audience was around 140, so that was a good turnout. And uh, the talk seemed to go down very well. There were plenty of... um, plenty of questions at the end and uh, then they took us out for a lovely meal um uh, which was very welcome and then nev and i stayed up till about 1 30 in the morning in the hotel bar putting the well to rights uh, by the way i ought to make a public thank you to nev for my mercedes hat he'd been over professionally doing some uh, audio visual work with uh, mercedes formula one here in the UK, and uh, he acquired this hat for me. So thank you very much indeed, Neville. It's brilliant. It's a very smart-looking hat. It is fabulous. Yes, exactly right. Uh, And in the meantime, I've also been doing a bit of dog photography. So I was up there uh, photographing some training classes uh, for dogs that are training to become scent dogs, uh, you know, that uh, can sniff out stuff. And um, on the back of that, I got a commission to photograph a, a lady's lovely um, fox red lab. So I did that over the weekend and uh, spent quite a while working on those pictures. That's all done and dusted. So all in all, it's it's been a busy time. So you said something about the Royal Aeronautical Society? Yeah, that's right. Do you want me to play this little piece of audio here regarding oh yeah this was a little taster uh you know we put together to see what it's like when you do this sort of thing okay let me push the button here and we can hear the little taster (laughs) first of all it's an absolute honor to come and speak to uh, an august audience like yourselves a lot of the people I speak to uh, don't have royal in front of their names, so uh, <laughs> this is an absolute delight for me. <coughs> and a set light to it. The PMC was absolutely furious. He uh, ordered the fire trucks from the station to come along and uh, uh, be there with their big water cannons. And when they said, what do we do, sir? Uh, should we put out the fire? He said, no, hose those students. <laughs> Commanded by the inimitable hoof proudfoot. Uh, and we didn't really know what most of the switches did. Uh, we had a sort of a, uh, a theory that if we moved the shiny ones, uh, that was fine. We left the, the dusty ones alone. 
Uh, sadly, there's no report of how the people of Swaffham felt when six aircraft rained down around them uh, in ten minutes. Now the old shack managed to you know, shake its 10,000 rivets in close formation off the runway and they'd struggle off. I don't know what speed they flew at, but we'd frequently complete the uh, mission, come back with all the intel and go past them and they were still motoring out <laughs> to their nominated camp. We'd say, well, you know, we've done it all now. The bears have turned north and we're heading home. And we'd say, why don't you, you know, turn around and go back? And they'd say, oh, we've got all these rations to eat. <laughs> Thank you. So you were doing this talk at the zoo? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was. I was talking about bears, so it seemed very appropriate to do it at the zoo. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now I see the connection. <laughs> um, you, you used a term there that I've never heard of before. Well, to rights. I don't know if you saw my reaction when I heard you say that. I went, "What? What did he just say?" Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I use all sorts of terms, some of which I make up. As I go along. Oh, but I don't think you made this one up. According to uh, Weather to Fly uh, in the chat room, uh, it's a, to have a conversation with someone in which you exchange opinions on a range of subjects, according to the Macmillan Dictionary. Oh, is that right? Well, there yeah. you go. It's obviously a real one then. Yeah. Wow. I learned so much doing this show. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just an American, though. We don't do those kind of... Have you heard of that uh, term, that stuff? What was the term again? I'm sorry. Well to rights. I have not Okay. Anyway, so it sounds like uh, a, a wonderful talk, uh, sir. And uh, this will be out in CD in the near future for ten ninety nine a pop, I believe. Well, it, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> ten uh, pence and point nine nine. Um, so, so Nev was there, very kindly doing a video. Um, so, uh, I mean, he gave up his time. He didn't didn't do it for himself or his podcast so i was very grateful i did receive an invoice i just have to tell you though oh did you okay well, yeah that's fair enough it's um, not cheap <laughs> but um uh, i i don't know uh, i'm sure we'll find a use for it at some point uh, but uh, no it's excellent looking forward to seeing that so i've been informed that uh, steph neglected to mention um, a meetup that she had i did um, i'm sorry recently. I Apparently, I'm not quite awake this morning. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to blame the uh, turkey hangover from last night for, for my uh, omission there. But yeah, no, on um, Tuesday evening, had a very brief meetup with Adam Spink. He was here in the U.S. Um, on vacation, I think going to uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida and then um, the uh, Air Force Museum up in Dayton. And in his travels, he stopped through the Charlotte area. So we had a chance to just meet up briefly and... Um, yeah, have a little bit of a meal and a little bit of a ketchup. So it was very nice. Excellent. And oh, well, I've got uh, the Berlin meetup coming up on Tuesday. Can I mention that? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Meany. Um, It's going to be at uh, the Circus uh, Hostel, uh, which is close to the Circus Hotel, where the brewery is. And Steph's been there, so she knows uh, how nice it is. It's going to be... Uh, Tuesday the 27th at 7 p.m., which is when the place opens. So although occasionally I did uh, put a note out saying 6.30 to 7, if you pitch up at 6.30, you just have to hang around for half an hour. 
But um, what's it like in there, Steph? Is it nice? Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, nice space. Um, the beer is fantastic. Uh, very friendly, people-friendly hosts. Um, so I would definitely encourage you, if you're going to be in the area, to go and, and meet up. Excellent. And I've got my uh, beer mug all ready to take there. And uh, sadly, Tillman will be in Portugal. So okay. he's taken the opportunity to uh, avoid me. Well, actually, I, I think it's just for that day. We're going to get together on another day because I'm I'm leaving on Sunday and not getting back till Thursday. So I'll have plenty of time to see him. But he's uh, got another uh, opportunity, business opportunity. He's looking at in Portugal. So I think it's quite important for him to be there. So sadly, we're not going to happen there at the night. Well, I certainly hope that he's instructed those uh, present at the uh, brewery to make sure that you get the endless tankard uh, i believe he's deal. had a word with the barman okay excellent <laughs> that's important <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well uh, anything else from the either of you that uh, uh, you, you know talk i'm about? sure i'm probably forgetting something but well if you remember then i'll, I'll just, let you know I'll yeah pop it back in uh so for me it's been a pretty busy week since the last show um believe i what did we say wednesday was yeah, the last it was uh, wednesday so i yeah, um, I went on a, on a three-day trip Thursday through Saturday and then um, home on Sunday to cram for my uh, my training, my continuing qualification training, or we call it recurrent training, and uh, had that on Monday and Tuesday, and it went uh, pretty well, I think. And uh, for those of you in the Coffee Fun Cadre, I, I, did, I just published a uh, crew log of that, uh, about a half an hour worth of half an hour's worth of audio um, regarding my experience there. And off on Wednesday and uh, kind of helping prepare for Thanksgiving. Uh, all the all the kids are home from school, and uh, the, so the house is full again, and it's been a lot of fun having the whole family under you know, the same roof. And so we had Thanksgiving, celebrated that yesterday, and... Uh, I had hoped perhaps to get a green slip, some overtime flying um, over this weekend, but it looks like they may have started to recover from their lack of staffing. So uh, I'll probably fly some sort of a trip uh, next week. Uh, the whole week is open for me, and I do need to pick up some flying. Hello folks, I'm on a trip, just left this morning from Atlanta to Philadelphia. Sorry for all the background noise here, I'm in the cockpit of this mighty mad dog. And I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or so, maybe longer, um, a gentleman contacted me and said, hey, I'm interning with Acme and uh, I would love to uh, have the opportunity to ride the jump seat uh, with you. Uh, to from Atlanta to somewhere and back and his name is Declan Declan what's your last name Hoffman, Hoffman. Declan Hoffman and uh, he had originally planned to go with me a couple of weeks ago to uh, Toronto and back and I uh, as you know had to call in sick for that because of my shingles onset but um, and then he said hey I'll just shift it to that trip that you're doing in a couple weeks where you're going to do that Philadelphia turn and you know what I had forgotten about that arrangement and when I was approaching the gate this morning in Atlanta I saw somebody walking toward me and I'm thinking uh oh what have I done wrong 
and uh, then I, it kind of just popped in my head, oh, that's right, uh, this must be the intern, Declan. And so we just uh, flew from Atlanta to Philadelphia, and uh, gosh, it was uh, not, a, not the best ride in the world uh, today because of the uh, frontal system that's moving through this, uh, basically the whole way from Atlanta to here. And now we got to go back and do the same thing over again. But I just wanted to uh, record a little something here to let Declan say hi to the APG community. Yeah, hello everyone. Um, it's great to be able to say something on the show. Um, thanks again to Captain Jeff for letting me sit along on his ride up to Philadelphia today. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been listening to the show for quite a while myself. Um, haven't too much recently, though. I seem to have run a lot of time recently but i'm hoping to listen to it some more here um and it's been great interning for acme and everything and uh yeah it's just been fantastic being able to to meet captain jeff finally and uh fly with him a little bit as as an observer i suppose <laughs> i don't know if i'll ever get to fly with him as his co-pilot but um yeah this has been fantastic so so thanks a lot yeah it's great to have you here and i wanted to make uh make sure that i recorded you uh, um, after this leg because I'm about to fly back to Atlanta and I had a pretty decent landing here in Philadelphia so I wanted to uh, make sure that uh, I gave Declan a good impression and that he said positive things about me during this recording. Now next leg who knows how bad it's going to be so you probably won't hear anything else from us or from Declan after this. <laughs> so anyway yeah and uh, Declan I hope that I get the opportunity to have you as a co-pilot um, although you're, you're going to have to hurry, yeah, I know. because I'm going to be retired in uh, just over five years. So, but you know the way things are running, there might be a possibility of it. You never know. Anyway, so that's oh Eric just returned from his walk around because I can tell from his fashionable vest that he was wearing the the fluorescent vest. Uh, you want to say just a quick hello to the APG community? All you have to do is say hi if you want. Say uh, hello, and uh, it's been a pleasure flying with this guy. It's only one leg, but I can tell it's going to be a good trip. Ah, he's bought it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm just the worst captain to fly with, trust me. I'm just putting on my best behavior right now. Anyway, no, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, Captain Jeff out. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. So anyway, it was very nice uh, meeting you, Declan, if you're listening. And uh, I, I look forward to having you, uh, hopefully, with our company in the future. Um, and, uh, oh, Liz is telling me I need to mention Dana. Yeah, you'll notice that in the intro here we didn't uh, introduce Dana because he is out there flying right now. And uh, I think they called him out on a uh, one day today. So he, was, uh, he wanted to uh, let us know that he misses being on the show and he wishes everyone a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, hopefully he'll be here with us on the next episode. So later on that trip, um, we ended up, uh, where did we, I don't remember exactly where we were the first night, but the second night we were in Rochester. Hey, I'm in Rochester. I uh, just got back from Dinosaur Barbecue and had a great time um, with my co-pilot Eric and John. What's your last name, John? Rivera. Rivera, John. Well, say hello. You're talking to oh. the uh, APG community. Oh, hey, it's uh, John Rivera here. Okay, that's enough. John's very talkative. Anyway, John is a uh, regional pilot captain, and he saw me standing waiting for the uh, 
waiting, waiting for the van to take us to the hotel here in Rochester. And he goes, is that Captain Jeff? <laughs> so I said, yes, it is. And uh, so we went to the same hotel and re rode the uh, van together. And uh, we're, uh, we just got back from Dinosaur Barbecue enjoying a great dinner. And uh, anyway, just wanted to make a quick recording here. We're with uh, Eric, my co-pilot, Greg, or Gary. He goes with either, he said. Uh, just say hi. Hi, Greg. Hello. <laughs> there you go. He goes, I don't know what's going on here. And uh, yeah, that's it. So I'm going to stop recording right now because I'm in an elevator with people that are looking at me strangely. So, All right, bye. So uh, just a couple little uh, snippets of, uh, you know, being on a trip and uh, our layovers and meeting up with people in our just awesome aviation community. And I had a blast. So we also... Uh, what's going on here? We're I seem I'm seeing a lot of activity in our little private channel. I think that Dana is communicating with us. He must have uh, he must have been listening, or his ears were itching, or something, uh, and he is uh, trying to insert himself into our show. Uh, he is uh, messaging that he is in Baltimore, Washington International Airport right now, and flying uh, Acme Flight 1925 back at 10 o'clock, which is in about five minutes. Dana, shut the darn phone off. Yeah. <laughs> Stop concentrating on your job. <laughs> yes. I'm sure he got the same text message from Liz saying we should mention where he is. Yeah. So he was just letting us know exactly where he is. Okay. Well, now he is here with us uh, virtually. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Nick was just giving me a hard time for looking a little sleepy. So I apologize. For that. <laughs> what is it called? Tryptophan? Is that what, what that yeah. Oh yeah, it's definitely the turkey hangover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the not the, all the beer. Not all the alcohol. That yeah. definitely is not playing a part in it. No, mm. that doesn't happen. No. Um, Ray Davis, you know him down under. Oh yes, you? sent us a video, and mm. I'm going to make an attempt to play said video. Hey, listeners. Currently here in Sydney, Australia, and I've run into an old friend. Hello, everyone. It's Barbara here with Ray, and uh, it's, I can't believe I'm here with Ray. Um, we met up here at um, Circular Quay, and uh, we've had a really good chat. Yeah, we have. Together. Had a bit of uh, morning tea, a bit of an early lunch. Yes, yes. Um, I'm here. I'm not really on holiday here. Um, I've uh, had to come because my grandmother is very sick and uh, very poorly. So we've, I've had a lot to sort out. And I thought, what a great um, opportunity to see Ray. So um, you know, in between, I'm trying to have a bit of downtime. So it's fantastic to see Ray today. Yeah, well, looks yeah. like we've uh, we've chosen a good day for it yeah. today, finally. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and how's the experience been here? So far. It's been well. I love Australia. I'm, I'm, every time I come, I fall in love with Australia more and more. Um, and when I can, I try and get to the beach, uh, come to Sydney on the ferry. It's fantastic to cross the bay on the ferry from Manly to Sydney. Um, so I do have a bit of relaxation, but you know, it has been quite stressful. 
with my grandmother and a lot of work to do. But I'm always pleased to be here. I call it my second home now. Oh. And I'm here for about four weeks. You never know, guys. We might actually steal it from you. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, my flight, I wanted to talk a little bit about yeah, aviation. Of course. Um, I flew with British Airways, mm -hmm. uh, changed at Singapore, and I flew on a 777 going to Singapore, and then a 777 coming to Sydney. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was very straightforward, uh, no delays, um, everything on time. And then I met up with my mother, who's been out here for, she'd been out here for about three, well, two months, two months. Um, and then I was with her for about two weeks, and she's gone home now because she's quite tired, and I've taken over. So I'm here for the next kind of ten days, and then return. Um, so, but yeah, but, um, and... I haven't seen many aeroplanes, but I do keep seeing mm -hmm. that beautiful seaplanes that, that fly over Sydney Harbour. Yeah. And uh, I would love to do that if I could. And I think the seaplane flies along the coastline. It does. Um, the plane you're looking at uh, normally is the um, seaplanes that come out of Rose Bay, uh, which is just over the back of the, the Opera House that you can see there. And uh, they used to run out of there with the, the old Qantas uh, amphibious planes many, many years ago. And now it's um, all modernised. We've got the uh, Cessna caravans that actually do it. So, yeah, you will see definitely the seaplanes as well as helicopters and a lot of tourist flights over yes. here. So yes. hopefully while you've got the time, yes. I do recommend it. Absolutely. Yeah. So... The last time I was in Australia, I um, went to, I got tra a train um, to the area near the airport, mm -hmm. Sydney Airport International and there's a beach right by the runway. Botany Beach. Yeah, is that mm -hmm. the name? And I spent a day there with my mother last time we were here, uh, just watching the planes taking off, swimming in the, in the turquoise sea, it was just fantastic. It's so, both worlds. Who knows, I might get another day with that. Well, you never know. Um, you never know. Time, if you can, if you ever come to Sydney and you love aviation, find that beach right next to the runway and watch all the planes taking off and landing. It is amazing. Yeah, it is a good spot. Yeah. It's also a good spot to uh, drop the old fishing line in as well. Yes. So yeah. Well, there you go. So I just want to say hello to everybody, um, particularly to uh, Carlos and Matt and Nev, oh, mm -hmm. and everyone at Plane Talking UK, and Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, yep. Dana, um, Steph, hello to you, and to hello to all the listeners, Captain Al, Pip, and uh, everybody, everybody in the aviation podcast world. Basically the whole family, as Michael would say. Yes, and I, I will catch up with all your podcasts, I'm sorry I've not been in the chat room. Well, busy lady, yeah. busy lady, yes. travelling the world and all that, yeah. lady of leisure. <laughs> all right. Did you get to see the opera house in? I did. You did? I oh did. yeah, great. I did. Just to prove that I am actually in Sydney. Well, we've got the... We've got the <laughs> Sydney Harbour. We've got the Sydney Harbour Bridge <laughs> Sydney behind Harbour, us as well, yeah. so it's all there, it's all there. All right, well, from Sydney, sunny... I'll try that again, actually. Sunny Sydney. Uh, this is Ray from Down Under and... Barbara. And far from Barbara in uh, Sydney, down under. All right. All right. Catch and you guys. Uh, see, see you later. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye. Bye. 
Great. Thank you, Ray, for sending that in, and Barbara for uh, being there as well. What an iconic spot to be taking a video right by the old coat hanger. Yep. Coat hanger. Is that coat what they hanger? call that bridge? Uh, it's its local nickname. Oh, oh okay. okay. I had no idea. Me neither. Just waiting for explanation. <laughs> <laughs> no, wonder, wonderful video. Nice to hear from the two of them. And, um, you know, best wishes to Barbara with her, uh, um, her grandmother. Yes. Or, uh, yeah, best wishes. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the Coffee Fund. That's your way to be involved in our show in a financial way if you can afford to do so. Again, we always uh, warn you that uh, if you need your money for food, shelter, clothing, flying lessons, that sort of thing, please don't send us anything. But if you have the resources to do so, we do appreciate it, and it uh, is very helpful for us here at the APG Show. And uh, let's see, since the last episode, we've had some folks join us. Uh, the classic method, Chris Randall, Jeff Moeller, Jonathan Charlton, and Bas Kuning uh, all sent us um, donations, contributions via the Coffee Fund Classic method. The other way to do it is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And since the last episode, we have three new producers, new patrons, and they are Frank Chandler, Rick Verhallen, and Daniel Simon. Thanks for signing up, guys. We do appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the Coffee Fund, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. We'll start off with this. Two killed after a vintage plane crashes in Fredericksburg, Texas. Uh, they were on board a vintage P-51D model, I believe, according to the NTSB. Uh, the North American Aviation P-51 Mustang is an American long-range single-seat fighter and fighter-bomber used in World War II and the Korean War by American soldiers. And uh, the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg was having their November World War II Pacific Combat Program show at the time of the plane crash. According to the website, the show educates visitors on the equipment and weapons used by both forces during World War II in the Pacific. Uh, the, uh, there was a witness uh, that uh, near this apartment building uh, parking lot where the airplane crashed said that uh, she hears these vintage airplanes flying around all the time, and she said it sounded like to her that the engine was sputtering before crashing. And it's a, it's a shame that there were two veterans aboard 
the airplane, uh, and they were both killed. Absolutely. Uh, I think sometimes we forget that these are uh, often pretty old aircraft. Uh, I know they're very well maintained, and often, you know, big parts of them are actually brand new, but uh, the engines are frequently uh, vintage. And, um, you know, if you think back to the accident rate during the war, it was pretty high. And those guys, uh, you know, were uh, doing it all the time, so they were uh, well-practiced. And nowadays, uh, people fly them uh, perhaps not as frequently, and uh, they're very high-performance machines. Uh, if it was just a simple engine failure and they couldn't make it back to their field, I'd just feel very sorry for them, very sad. And I think in most of these uh, types of aircraft that were once... Um, well, I guess the P-51 didn't have an ejection seat per se, did it? Did it? No. You just had to manually bail out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So hmm. the way you're going to get out of it is to get rid of the canopy and uh, release your seat straps and stand on the seat and jump over the back of the wing or perhaps invert it and push. But uh, you're not going to be able to do that unless you've got a bit of height. So Yeah. Because uh, yeah, then you've got to manually your ripcord. Uh, yeah. What's the lowest height you could expect uh, to be able to successfully uh, deploy a parachute, Steph? Bearing in mind, these are probably, uh, you know, just conical parachutes. I mean, it depends on the type of parachute. Um, 1,500 feet, maybe lower. Yeah. On the type. Yeah. yeah, so they were probably quite a bit lower then. Yeah, they were probably committed to a forced landing of some sort. It's just a shame they couldn't find a, a suitable area. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a shame that one of the P-51D airframes are gone, but more a shame that we've lost two lives. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Indeed. So um, this next item, uh, now, folks, you know, we, we have these show notes, and we uh, need you to look at these uh, uh, videos in the show notes that uh, are included with this story. Um, oh, yeah, it's a remarkable video. It's amazing. Brilliant. It's uh yeah, you'll you'll start watching it and you just can't you can't stop watching it until it finishes because it's a, an exciting rescue. Uh, Los Angeles Fire Department Air Operations pilots David Nordquist and Joel Smith took it to new heights uh, at the Woolsey Fire on Friday, November 9th, while actively conducting a water drop on a flank of the massive blaze. The pilots of Fire Four received a request for a follow-on mission to conduct a rescue at nearby Castro Peak in the hills above Malibu. The smoke column thickened and darkened with danger as Nordquist and Smith approached their target. The ridge atop the narrow peak was filled with service buildings, vehicles, and antenna, antennae, creating an incredibly complex scenario for landing, yet they knew people's lives depended on them finding a way. With their fuel supply dwindling and no resources available for a hoist operation, they made their approach. And I'm going to play a little bit of a clip from this just to kind of give you a teaser. Um, do you see anybody? Yeah, there's a guy with his dog down target. here. Same as last target. Uh, there's no one in the area. You're clear to clear for the drop. Clear for the drop. Well, the other thing we can do is just put them like on the north side of those vans there. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I mean, he's gonna. we're going to have to put the tail rotor into where he's coming, so that's not good. No. How is that left side looking to you? Uh... No way, Dave. But, uh. It, oh, man. Yeah, this isn't looking good. Yeah, so that was when they first approached the uh, area and, and before they uh, figured out another uh, way to get onto that ridgeline to rescue, I believe it was three 
three uh, passengers or three adults. Three people, two dogs. Two dogs. Yeah. One, one dog was as big as two people. <laughs> it was a you. mastiff or something? Yeah, that mastiff. Yeah. He was huge and he wasn't very keen about getting onto the helicopter. Who could blame him? Yeah. But, so a decent uh, sized helicopter then, too. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, uh, considering the pressure they were under, not only the terrain, not only the uh, the smoke, the poor visibility, um, you know, the potential of there being a hazard, they were right on minimum fuel. I mean, they called Bingo, approaching Bingo before they even started looking uh, for the spot they were going to even try and land, and then they were airborne for a considerable length of time after. So, uh, you know, this is where the guys really show their metal. I mean, they 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 were so professional about what they did. I was very impressed. Yes, watch it. All right, and you know what I mean when I say that. I mean watch the video, not like watch it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Item. Watch it, Steph. Uh, see, oh. <laughs> uh, we have uh, this incident, which is a uh, kind of weird and sad. An Aeroflot Boeing 737-800 flying from Moscow um, uh, Airport to Athens, Greece, was in the initial climb out of the runway 24 left when the crew reported they believed they had encountered a collision with an animal on the runway. There was no abnormal indication. The crew continued the flight to Athens. A runway inspection found human remains as well as a wallet, documents, and other personal belongings on the runway. The occurrence aircraft landed in Athens without further incident. A post-flight inspection of the aircraft revealed damage to the fuselage. The occurrence aircraft is still on the ground in Athens about 17 hours later. And Moscow's Interregional Transport Prosecution Office opened an investigation into the accident. A 25-year-old Armenian citizen was being deported from Spain to Armenia via an intermediate stop in Moscow. During the flight from Spain to Moscow, he had rioted on board of the aircraft and was received by Moscow police, who escorted the man to the departure gate to Armenia. Instead of entering the bus to the aircraft, the man, however, stepped onto the apron and ran away. A criminal case has been opened during which the prosecution office also reviews whether the airport fulfilled all of the laws of aviation safety. Yeah, uh, I'm glad to a certain extent that the crew didn't spot the guy because I'm just trying to imagine how hard it would be. I mean, we get a number of, uh, in this country, suicides in front of trains, which is very common, and I always... My heart breaks for everyone involved, but particularly the train driver. It must be awful. And the same would occur if you were a pilot trying to fly and someone ran into your airplane as you're getting airborne. Apart from the fact that you might um, do something with the aircraft, you know, swerve out of the way that might endanger the flight. Uh, afterwards, reimagining that occurrence would just be awful. Sure. I mean, you know, it's one of those things that you don't expect to see. And when you're presented with an unexpected situation, uh, you might do something that wouldn't be advisable if it weren't, you know, a person in that situation. If it was a small animal or something else, you know, you would do as they did and continue. But yeah, I can't imagine. And then, like you said, the thinking about that afterwards for all those other flights that you might do in the future. Yeah. Awful. An awful incident. Okay. Well, with that, a short news segment today which is great because that means we get to spend more time on the good stuff, which is the stuff that we get from you, your great feedback. 
Captain. Incoming message. The first one is audio feedback from our friend, the good-looking Captain Jeff. Well, hello there, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, uh, any guest host who might be on this show that this this is airing, and the entire APG community. This is uh, Colonel Jeff. I'm calling about the Lion Air incident, and I'm going to just give you my impressions of the MAX 8, which I just recently flew for the first time, and some other things uh, regarding the air directive, union responses, the system in general. So let me tell you a little bit about the MAX-8 and my feedback on this. I was trained on the MAX-8 approximately two years ago. It was all computer-based training. So I went through a couple hours of basic computer-based you know, learning, and that's all there is. And when we go back for our recurrent training, we do review the MAX-8 stuff because they have been on the line now for just about a year at American or as I should say, Ajax. Uh, I knew I was going to get a Max 8. We were flying from LA to DC. I saw it on the uh, schedule for my trip. So the night before, it was a long layover in LA, so I went through some review of some videotape reviews that I retained on my iPad of the training. Basically, the Max 8 is it's the same type rating. So there's no overall change. From the glare shield up, everything is the same, or visibly the same. The systems behind some of the switches have changed, and a couple lights have moved, and a couple other things have gone away. Um, The big difference in the cockpit is I went from uh, six screens to two, one on each side of the airplane. And they are gigantic. They're large rectangular screens. Uh, They take up the entire glare shield. And they are so large that we had to move the gear handle, the thrust management computer, the auto brake controllers have all been moved down to the center pedestal uh, forward of the throttles. So finding things initially is a little difficult. The displays are pretty much the same as a 787 and what they look like. They were very large. Uh, A lot of information on them, a lot of wasted space on them, in my opinion. Um, And that's about the end of the cockpit differences. So basically, it's just an orientation process of trying to find things. Uh, Made engine start just a little bit cumbersome, which is okay because the engine start itself, the new engines, the U- new engines take approximately twice as long to start as the uh, CFM-56. This is the Leap 1X engine, and uh, they're very slow to start. Some other things that made the airplane significantly different. Uh, they've raised the nose gear strut approximately a foot, and that's to accommodate the huge new motors that are on there. These Leap engines go from, we go from a 60-inch diameter intake to a 69 don't go there, Al. Diameter intake. And for that reason, they had to raise the nose of the airplane for ground clearance. And they also had to extend the wing, the pylons, the engine pylons, more forward uh, out the front of the wing to accommodate this new engine to give, give them more ground clearance. 
This also caused the center of gravity shift, which has an impact on this incident with Lion Air and the system that uh, comes into play. The airplane is also longer by about 10 feet. Uh, the tail end is slightly different. Uh, it's a new APU exhaust. It looks more like an Airbus on the rear end um, instead of the uh, uh, standard uh, 7.3 end. It sticks out a little bit further. We added 12 passengers. So we went from 160 passengers to 172. And we have the infamously tiny, tiny bathrooms. Uh, fortunately, the first class lab, which is the one that the pilots use, is not as small as the ones in the back. I can turn around in the bathroom <laughs> in the on the max in the first class side. Uh, the ones in the back, whichever way you step in, that's the way you're going to go to the bathroom. Um, and Nick, you and Dana, if you ever get on one of these things, I don't know how you're going to get in there. They are so small. I mean, it's tight for me, and I'm about Jeff's size, so not very big. Uh, the uh, There's also no entertainment system as far as TV screens. Everything is done via Wi-Fi. We have a new broadband Wi-Fi system, which actually works very well uh, when it operates. Unfortunately, on my flight, it didn't work for about half the trip. The airplane taxis very comfortably. Rides better during taxi than the 737NG does. I don't know if that's because of the raised nose gear strut or what, but it just seemed to be a smoother taxi. It also does not want to slow down. On the ground or in the air, this airplane is slick. It does not want to slow down. We were very heavy leaving LA, and I never had to add power except for the initial breakaway to get the thing going down the taxiway. Didn't have to ride the brakes very much, but it would. it just wanted to roll by itself. So I enjoyed flying the airplane, except for the, you know, just getting used to it. It was a five and a half hour flight. So I kind of got to get comfortable by the end of the flight. It was very easy to land. Uh, it's uh, about 13,000 pounds more max landing weight. Uh, we, we, rather, we landed in DC above or right at what would have been max landing weight for an NG model of 144,000 pounds. We were right about there. And the airplane stopped no problem at all. It handled very smoothly. So let me go into this uh, system and its impact on what happened with Lion Air and uh, some of the things that have come out since then. The Lion Air incident, as most of you know, uh, they basically lost control of the airplane. A lot of altitude deviations, airspeed deviations from the flight data computers have been uh, talked about. And... The airplane had been written up over the previous several days for different anomalies from airspeed disagree to altitude disagree to differential field, field differential pressure light had come on. Um, in the 737, if you if the airspeed indicators on the captain and first officer side do not agree, you get a large yellow alert, uh, no master caution, just an alert on the primary flight display. The same thing happens if the altimeters are more than about 200 feet off, you get the same thing. We also get an angle of attack disagree light. I'm not sure where that one shows up because I've never seen it. Uh, the limitation on that is 0.5 units for in flight. I do not know when that light actually comes on. It's 200 feet for the altimeter and I think it's 15 knots for the airspeed. 
the field differential pressure light is just that it's a pressure because it's a hydraulically driven system that provides the artificial feel for the yoke. And those are the systems that had been written up in the previous days of that Lion Air ING. And as most of you know, Lion Air does not have the greatest track record maintenance wise. And I'm going to leave it at that. So, um, what happened was in the preliminary investigation, Lion Air uh, obviously had Boeing involved in the investigation. And Boeing saw this and they re immediately realized that this was probably a runaway stab trim situation. And it has to do on the MAX with this new system that's only on the MAX. It is not on the NG. This system was specifically installed on the MAX because of the new engines and how far forward they are. And let me a little, read a little bit about the certification process that, that, that Boeing had to go through. And this is uh, from an article on the MCAS system. Um, let's see here. They had to find a way, the engineers had to find a way to fit a much larger and more fuel-efficient engine under the wing's single-aisle, low-riding landing gear. So they moved the engine slightly forward and higher up and extended the, the landing gear, nose landing gear, by 8 inches. Uh, it gave us a 14% improvement on fuel, but also gave us this new system. This changed how the jet handled. The engines being so far forward caused higher th and their higher thrust. We go from a 27,000 pound engine to almost a 29,000 pound engine. Uh, causes a rather large pitch up movement, movement. And we've seen that in even some of the NG accidents. I remember the one that was in one of the uh, former Soviet republics where there was the video of the, you could see the airplane pitch up and it came back in almost straight down on a go around. Um, so they quietly added this new system to, quote, compensate for some unique aircraft handling characteristics during its Part 25 certification, unquote. Uh, this helps bring the pilots bring the nose down in the event that jet's angle of attack drifts too high when flying manually. Manually, not under the autopilot. This puts, uh, and thus, you know, when you're flying manually, if you get a really high angle of attack, you're risk stalling the aircraft. So, um... That's basically what the system was designed, designed to do. The MCAS, or Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, is activated without pilot input. It's automatic, or automatique for you, Nick. And it commands nose-down stabilizer to enhance pitch characteristics during steep turns with elevated load factors or during flaps-up flight at air speeds approaching stall. Its sole function is to trim the stabilizer nose-down. According to the systems description to pilots who were learning about it for the first time this week, and I can tell you that uh, the Union for American Airlines and the Southwest uh, Pilots Union were the first two to speak out about this. I saw today that uh, uh, ALPA has also joined in the in the fray about what is this system? None of us. It is in none of my operating manuals. Not it wasn't in my emergency procedures. It wasn't in my volume one of the operating manual or my volume two, which is. Volume two is basically basic systems. No, none of the maintenance people know what it is. I mean, this the, basically Boeing didn't tell anybody. They didn't think we needed to know. Um, it yeah, pretty amazing. 
the system activates when there's a, a certain angle of attack threshold is surpassed. It does. The article does not say what that is. Um, and it moves the uh, stabilizer at 0.27 degrees per second for a total travel of 200, 2.5 degrees in just 10 seconds. That's a lot of trim. Um, and that'll give you a really heavy, it'll take you all the way to full nose down trim in about 10 seconds, depending on whether you had the trim set before that. The air directive came out shortly thereafter. It gave the airlines three days to, to uh, comply. And I know my airline did. I have a new volume one, which is the systems and a new uh, emergency procedures manual for this. Uh, it's basically additions to a, an emergency procedure called runaway stabilizer if the trim runs away. In the 737 cockpit on the right side of the throttle quadrant just below the flap indicator, uh, the flap handles, uh, there's two stab trim cutout switches. They are guarded switches. Um, and uh, basically, if the air directives kind of put two big paragraphs in uh, describing incidences where this angle of attack or MCAS system may be a problem and they, it directs us to turn these two switches off immediately, which will stop the runaway trim wherever it is at that point. So, uh, However, when you turn those two switches off, you now do not have an autopilot and you do not have any electric trim. And for you Airbus guys who don't have it, this is why the Boeings have this big stinking wheel on either on either side of the cockpit for the pilots to use because we are now a giant Cessna 152. There is a handle that pops out from that wheel so we can crank it faster. Uh, there are times in flight where the electric trim runs too fast uh, when I use the, the throttle switches. So I will actually just slightly move that wheel to kind of trim the airplane myself. Uh, but with the crank, if we had a lot of nose up or nose down trim, we could spin that thing rather quickly just by Grab, popping the handle out and cranking it. And that's what basically we're directed to do if we get into this situation. But again, we didn't know this situation could even happen. Uh, there's some limitations that go into this that uh, are still kind of fuzzy. Uh, some things that they tell us to look for in this air directive and in our new procedures. If we happen to get uh, a stick shaker, which is a stall warning, uh, we're supposed to do this. If we start getting what we call the barber pole, which is a minimum speed uh, display on our airspeed indicators, um, there's an indicated airspeed disagree alert, which I have seen on the airplane. It comes up at about 15 knots between you and the first officer's airspeed indicators. There's an altitude disagree alert, which also comes, I've seen, which comes up at about 200 feet difference between altimeters. The one that I don't know about is the angle of attack disagree light. Uh, it doesn't give us when that, I don't know when that light would come on. The limitation for the angle of attack indicators is 0.5 degrees. The most I've ever seen is 0.2, uh, and that's typical. Well, like one side of the aircraft will have like a 3.0 angle of attack, and the other one will have 2.8. Uh, we normally cruise around between 2.4 and 3.4. Uh, our approach speeds are around 4.5 on the angle of attack. Another one that was mentioned in the in the initial uh, line air incident was a field differential pressure light. I've explained this a little bit to Nick in a, in a DM. He contacted me about this. This has to do with uh, 
the fact that we have a hydromechanical flight control system, so we have no feel on the yoke when we move it. This is an artificial feel system. It's run through a pitot tube that sticks out of the leading edge of the horizontal tail. No, I'm sorry, the vertical tail. And uh, uses hydraulic pressure to give us feedback on what the yoke should uh, actually feel like as if we were flying a manual or a fly-by-wire airplane like Jeff does. It also says that the autopilot might disengage uh, or the inability to engage the autopilot. If, this, if the 737 autopilot is very sensitive, if you do not have that thing trimmed up and no loads on the airplane when you try to engage it, it won't. It just ignores your input and sets the, the siren off again. So the problem can be the autopilot, if it's on and this runaway trim happens, the airplane may be trimming full nose down and the autopilot will stay engaged up to a point and then it just gives up with no warning. It just disconnects and if, you, if it gets the full nose trim and just disconnects, the airplane is going to pitch over severely. I mean, they're going to be, everything's going to be hitting the ceiling that's not tied down. So, and it's, so you're going to get a handful of airplane. Uh, however, this system is only supposed to engage when the autopilot is off. So we'll see. Uh, again, I've yet to see any additional training on this system, any additional information on this system. And I haven't seen anything else as far as when I'm going to get training on or information on the MCAS system itself. I am really looking forward to what comes out of this Lion Air accident report. I think a lot of the 730 MAX operators, I know uh, Southwest is the largest operator of the MAX right now. Lion has a whole bunch of order, and so do we. Uh, we have about 17 or 18 of them already, and uh, I'll be seeing more in the near future. So that's my feedback on what's going on with that. Um, I really can't tell you a whole lot more. The airplane was fun to fly. I'm not uncomfortable flying it with this system on board, especially with the new guidelines. Uh, to, to my knowledge, no carrier in the United States has had an issue with angle of attack disagree or anything to do with this MCAS system. And Southwest has had their maxes for about a year and a half. We've had ours for just over a year. So they've been out there for a while. Um, so... With that, I'll let you guys discuss what you think about my feedback and uh, talk to you all later. Bye-bye. This is what I think about your feedback. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite good, actually. I, I yeah, like very handsome thorough. Jeff and his <laughs> most, <laughs> most informative feedback. That's brilliant. I do have yeah. a few questions, however. So, um, uh, handsome Jeff... Um, we have a, a wheel for manual trim, so uh, don't think we don't. We do. We have one a bit like uh, the Boeing one, but ours isn't a complete wheel. Uh, we only get the top portion of it. The rest of it's hidden inside the center console. So my questions are, um, what happens if you use the electric trim switches to oppose this stall prevention system as it puts an input in? So if it starts trimming those down and you reach to your electric trim switches and trim in the opposite direction. I'm curious to know which one wins. Uh, so you know that answer, do you? I'm sorry, you weren't asking me. No, I wasn't asking you. Uh, and, and Nick, I just want you to, I, I have a question for you. You know that Jeff 
Colonel Jeff is not here, right? That was a yeah, a, yeah. But he's going to okay. listen to this and he's going to okay. send more feedback in. I just, hope. Just checking. So the second question, handsome Jeff, and quiet in the cheap seats. Um, I would love to know the relationship between the previous AOA disagree faults that were written up on this aircraft uh, and the system that failed. Could that fault have caused the stall prevention system to activate erroneously? And thirdly, handsome Jeff. Um, what pitch authority do you have left, if any, uh, when the trim is set full nose down? If you could come back with answers to that, perhaps for the next show, I'd, I'd love it. If it operates anything like the 727, I believe that if you trimmed in the opposite direction of the runaway, it would it would uh, put a brake, a stab trim brake on. All right. Um, but uh, the and that would be there. I think the first action, the second would be to hit the trim cutout switches which would stop everything, and then third, grab that wheel to keep it from spinning if Still necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because they're the two areas that I, I, I was wondering what kind of control authority they would have uh, flying the aircraft with this thing. So that's the thing about this. I mean, regardless of all these issues about the system that Boeing didn't tell anything uh, about to – a lot of the airlines and the pilot groups are not sure who knew what, but regardless of all that, which is, you know, not a, not a good thing. If you're a pilot flying an airplane and the trim is just going, you know, like the wheel is going around and around, it makes a racket when it moves. Um, at some point you have to think, why is it doing that? It is a runaway trip. That would mean to me a runaway trim. And I would do all the necessary things to keep it from running away anymore. And so that's why I think it's hard to excuse um, if that's really what happened. Uh, you know, the, the crew, why did they, why did they not stop the trim runaway, regardless of what was making it run away? You know, how, how quickly did that trim runaway occur, though? Was it? Uh, you mean, how quickly was it trimming? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, like I think it said 10 units in two point something seconds or so, something like that. Yeah, I, right, that I thought that was pretty, well. Yeah, two but, and I mean, half degrees in 10 seconds. This it thing is right, right next to you, right next, right next to your knee. And it's going, you know, it's moving right, right, right. and it's going to be very hard to control. But you have to react to that. You can't just continue to fight the airplane uh, in an untrimmed situation. You have to take care of that, that runaway trim first so that you can control the airplane. I think uh, Jeff is going to tell us that with a full nose-down trim situation, all the authority that you have left in that yoke is probably not going to be enough to overcome the uh, the nose-down pitch, I, I think, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I, and there's no way, I mean, I'm assuming that this uh, trim wheel is mechanically connected. There's no way that this anti-stall system could work in the background and move the horizontal stabilizer without the trim wheel clacking, without it moving. I don't so, think so. I don't know. No. That's a question. No. No. No, that wheel, if, if the trim is moving, that wheel is moving. Okay, cool. It's and, a mechanical linkage. And just a general question for all the uh, experienced aviators out there. Wonder why Boeing didn't just put a straightforward stick pusher in they were concerned that the aircraft needed some kind of forward input uh, approaching the stall in uh, certain configurations. You know, stick pushers have been around, and Boeing have fitted them to many aircraft. It does have a stick pusher. Well. It, it does, does have, have a stick pusher. Well, why yeah. does it need this thing on top of a stick pusher? 
I don't know, maybe they thought this was a more subtle way to take care of that wow. situation. Cool. I mean, and stick pushers are not renowned for going off erroneously. They, they you know, no. they've been around for a long time and they're pretty um, fail safe devices. Oh, anyway, lots of yeah. questions. Yeah, it, it does have a stick pusher system. Wow. So at least the 7.2 did. I'm assuming the 7.3 does as well. Okay, yeah, lots of questions. Thank you, Jeff, for, uh, yeah, that was for answering stuff, many of them. Great, yeah. great feedback. Always yeah. good to hear from somebody who is actually, this is their operating office. Yeah, exactly right. And lovely to hear from such a handsome chap. <laughs> You've only okay. mentioned that a few times, Nick. That's, that's enough. <laughs> Let's see. How do I uh, boot him out of here? I think I have that command here. On... <laughs> no! <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of booting people out, I am actually going to uh, boot yourself. I'm going to boot myself out here. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah I, know. I was hoping we would start a little bit earlier today, but that's that's okay. I understand. It's it's. No uh, I'm, I'm surprised your arm is still working. You having to hold that phone for so long. Well, that's why I've been putting it on the uh, little avatar icon and muting myself because I've been putting the phone down because my arm probably would have fallen off by this. <laughs> Poor Not you. very comfortable holding it. <laughs> I have nowhere to rest it. There's just like a, a couch in this room that I'm sitting on. There's no table or anything. So. Well, thank you for taking one for the team. Steph. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Great to pleasure. see you Always anyway. Pleasure. I'm sorry I can't stick around longer. Um, I know there's a lot of good feedback yet to come still, but um, I'll see. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of people here in the house that I'd like to go uh, make sure I spend some time with. Since of course. That's the reason I'm here. So. Yeah. Anyway, it was lovely spending time with you all, and hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving for Jeff. Nick, too. Why not? Cheers. And uh, have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you all next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Steph's gone now. We can talk about her. Because <laughs> I know she never listens to the show after the fact, so no, we she get away with murder. No, exactly. <laughs> of course, I don't know. There's nothing really negative to say about no. Steph. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, thanks again, the, uh, the handsome... Captain Jeff for sending in that feedback. George sent in some feedback regarding the Southern Airways Flight 242. Uh, George Nolly, he's the host of the Ready for Takeoff podcast. He says, first of all, thanks for the shout out. Yeah, I gave him another one. Captain Nick's plane tales in the last episode was really great. Of course, this was not the last episode, but a few episodes back. If any of the listeners want to learn more about Flight 242, there is an excellent book about the crash and the aftermath entitled Southern Storm by Sammy Chittam. And then he has a link in his um, note that uh, gets you to the Amazon bookstore. Uh, I interviewed Sammy in Ready for Takeoff podcast episode 178 if anyone wants to hear her backstory. And then he has a link to that as well. She did tons of research, including interviewing survivors, rescue personnel, radar controllers, the works. Thanks again, George. Brilliant. Well done, George. Yeah. So if you want to check out the interview of the author of that book that uh, talks about this incident, please refer to the show notes. And if you haven't yet checked out the Ready for Takeoff podcast, please do. It's an excellent one. Yeah, um, perhaps that book needs to go in our APG book library list. Yeah, good idea. Who's in charge of that? Who's the librarian? Miss Tiffany. Ah, Miss Tiffany the librarian. Brilliant. Yes. I have a thing about librarians. Do you? Don't we all? <laughs> and then here's a wink. There we go. Um, Sam 
writes, and the 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 title of his feedback is "Beer!" Exclamation <laughs> point. Hi, Jeff, Steph, Nick, and Dana. I tried making my own IPA at home these last few weeks, and although I'm yet to try it, it smells good. I did struggle when it came to naming it, so what better than something plane-related? Although I guess crash-related is a little pessimistic. Uh, Anyway, although this is the prototype label and a little rough around the edges, I thought you'd enjoy it. Nick, if it tastes half-decent and you want... Send me an address for you, and I'll send a bottle or two. Uh, wow. Back to flying. Oh. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I'm going to reply to that. Okay. Back to flying. I'm getting through my... Oh, before we go on to that, um, the, uh, he sent us a JPEG, actually a, um, a movie of this um, label, so he actually twists the bottle so that we can uh, see the entire bottle. But the uh, the name of the IPA is Plane Crash. <laughs> um, yeah. And it has some, looks like one of those safety uh, briefing cards uh, with the inflatable life jackets and all that kind of stuff. It's a very, uh, very cute label. But uh, the important thing is, how does this taste? And uh, Nick, hopefully he'll be able to taste it and let us know. Super. Back to flying. I'm getting through my LAPL and the exams for motor gliders and arrow towing at my gliding club. Nick, perhaps we could have a UK meetup uh, fly-in sometime after I've got my license. And again, that's uh, Sam, Blue Skies, he says. And uh, yeah, Yeah, so maybe you could do a combination meetup and uh, transfer of IPAs. That'd be a great idea. I I, I only fly into Heathrow. Can you fly in there? (laughs) That would be interesting. In a glider? <laughs> yeah, that'd be very cool. Yeah. Or you could fly your, no, uh, couldn't work the other way around. Andrew sent in some feedback. He said, probably a dead horse now. Uh, after listening to episode 347, you can forego this audio. It weren't, weren't, <laughs> let me try that again. It won't hurt my feelings. Now, Andrew uh, as I said, he he listened to some of the feedback and realized that uh, some of these points that he covers in his audio uh, may have been covered and sorted out. Uh, going back to that original audio from, I believe it was Alex that uh, sent us the feedback regarding the um, traffic pattern uh, in northern Alabama. And oh, I know. When you guys started talking about that, I just switched. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought it would it was important to play this because uh, Andrew is a helicopter pilot and um and i didn't realize uh, some of the things he talks about here so let's uh take a listen to andrew hey there apg crew this is andrew from uh north alabama just sitting here listening to uh the discussion about uh the muscle shoals uh, regional carrier uh, that was making the right pattern and i completely agree with what brandon and uh, rh had to say um i think that really cleared things up um, found the, the conversation interesting because uh, my home airport is actually about uh, 40 nautical miles southeast of uh, Muscle Shoals and I fly in there on a regular basis. The difference is I'm a helicopter guy um, so contrary to everybody else's left pattern I'm actually going to be flying right patterns and uh, I've actually been in there before and at my home airport um, Steph mentioned uh, you know, aircraft flying around with mild visibility or clear clouds or whatever their 
<coughs> cloud uh, separation and visibility requirements are, um, we run into that at my home airport as well. Uh, being a helicopter guy, all I need is half mile clear clouds to go out and uh, put around the pattern. But um, we also have several corporate aircraft that'll come in on IFR flight plans, and uh, they do the exact same thing that Jeff described. Uh, you know, monitor the CTAP frequency um, five, six minutes out uh, to kind of get an idea of what's going on, and then let us know where they're at. And um, you know, and I, I can see where things get gray and kind of sticky when I might be at Muscle Shoals um, flying around and you know, clear clouds, perfectly legal, uh, and, um, some sticky weather and somebody comes in off an IFR flight plan flying the visual approach on their IFR flight plan. And they switch over to the CTAF at the last second to tell me that they're uh, right base to final or something like that. As a helicopter guy, I'm flying a right hand pattern. The far specified, we are to avoid the flow of fixed wing traffic. That means flying right patterns. That means flying non-standard patterns. Um, except for at night when we'll, we'll join the rest of the traffic just so it's easy for all of us to see each other. Um, anyway, that, that would catch me off guard, and um, um, I think everybody has the responsibility to talk on the CTAF, um, and uh, I think the guys flying in the Muscle Shoals did a great job of doing that. It sounds like uh, you guys at ACME... Uh, have policies in place to ensure that you guys do that as well, and I hope every pilot would um, do that. So, um, just like y'all said, it just comes back down to the basics of uh, communication, specifically aviating, navigating, and communicating. So, uh, thanks for the discussion, guys. That was awesome, and uh, keep up the great work. This is Andrew from North Alabama. See you later. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, I think you know, flying that right-hand pattern, your pattern is probably going to be pretty tight uh, and close in to the runway, whereas that uh, right traffic, quote-unquote, that the uh, regional was flying was probably quite a bit wider. So I think that, you know, it's still a safe operation. But uh, thank you for that perspective. You waited for me to say something. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are doing. Something clever. (laughs) Okay. Well, with that, let's move on. Um, You know, this this subject will not die. (laughs) No, sadly. Um, I'm trying to think the last time I actually flew a circuit. uh, It would be something in the region of 24 years ago. Yeah, well, I have flown one much more recently, although I was really just a passenger. Uh, in uh, an airplane. Oh, that by. doesn't count. I'm fr- Fred's yeah. flown something that resembled a, a circuit. Okay. Well, then for me, that. it's been longer than 24 years <laughs> since I've flown a circuit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Jimmy wrote in. Hello, Captain Jeff and APG crew. I'm a pilot for SafeJet US, the US-based portion of the company that pilot Pip of the Plane Safety Podcast. Does that mean they're from. always broken if they're US? Uh, you know, we, we don't really use that term here, unserviceable. Do you we, not? Uh, no, oh, okay. I'm not, you know, that's not one of those things that I see very often. So, uh, but I guess if you want to refer to the United States as unserviceable, uh, go ahead. Well, it's just the same words as initials. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, he's a pilot for safe jets U S and operates to non-towered airports almost every week I work. 
This is a follow-up for episode 347 on the episode 345 follow-up discussion, specifically on air crews not having non-standard traffic pattern info for non-towered airports. And I promise I'm not intending to make anybody feel stupid. I say that because I previously flew for a regional airline and overlooked this info myself. While we have access to the chart supplement on our company iPad, we rarely reference it because all the necessary info is listed on the JEP charts. And he says that they use the JEP uh, Flight, Flight Deck Pro app as well. The 10-9 page, the taxi airport diagram, for those not familiar with the uh, Jeppesons, lists any notices regarding non-traffic pattern patterns or preferred calm wind runway or any other relevant special info for that airport. The 10-9 for Clemson, South Carolina, Kilo's uh, Charlie Echo uniform, has a text box with, quote, parachute jumping activity in vicinity of airport runway 7 right traffic pattern. Uh, Tune Airport KJWN, which is west of Nashville, Tennessee, has a preferred calm wind runway of runway 20, which also has a right traffic pattern, and this info is also listed on the 10-9. When the discussion was happening about Kilo Charlie Echo Uniform, I was screaming, look at the 10-9! Then I remembered that since Acme doesn't fly to Clemson, uh, there is a very good chance you would not have access to the Clemson 10-9, unless it was an alternate airport that Acme may use, presuming Acme does does a specialized subscription for destination and alternate airports only. You are correct. We do not have that airport. It's not one of our authorized alternate or even emergency fields, as far as I know. Um, He included some screenshots of the 10-9s in case uh, that we don't have access to them, and we don't. Because of the type of operation at SafeJets, we have JEPs or company-issued charts for pretty much every airport. Uh, keep up the excellent work, and this is Jimmy Reeks the third. So thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I included um, at least the Clemson, South Carolina, Oconee County Regional 10-9, so everybody can see what he's talking about. And uh, so I think that that makes it clear that if we're going to operate into an airport that has a special procedure or a different pattern, that we would see that kind of information on the 10-9. I did not have access to it, so that's why I didn't mention it. And finally, I'm hoping, we'll see, um, the uh, subject regarding visual approaches, another piece of fine feedback, audio feedback, again, From RH and AG, they are the co-hosts of the wonderful Opposing Bases Air Traffic Talk podcast. And they put in some, or put together some audio feedback for us, so let's take a listen. Ready. Wait a minute. Does this sound like a shameless plug to you? Absolutely shameless. I mean, they're even playing their... um, Intro music. Intro What's this, this? What are they trying to take over our podcast? Yeah, well, they're a bunch of scrap <sighs> scoundrels. Uh, they are. We're gonna have to have a word with these folks. Yeah. All right. There'll be a bloody helicopter flying past next. <laughs> Hello, Doctor Steph and Captains Jeff, Dana, and Nick. Romeo Hotel here from Opposing Bases Air Traffic Talk. It's been several months since we set in audio feedback, and I want to take a few minutes to address a couple of items. 
first, thank you again for all the times you mentioned us on your show. Our audience continues to grow, and it helps considerably when you take the time to mention us by name. In case some of your listeners don't know us yet, we are Romeo Hotel and Alpha Golf, two air traffic controllers and rated pilots. We share stories about our daily aviation interactions and respond to listener questions and feedback. Our weekly show can be found on all the normal places podcasts are found. Simply search for Opposing Bases Air Traffic Talk and have a listen. Shameless plug over. Second, I really enjoyed participating in the debate over large transport category aircraft landing at a non-towered airport. It is particularly interesting to consider the audience, controllers, non-pilots, pilots, av geeks, airplane lovers, etc., and how complicated that conversation must have sounded to the novice. The debate was strong between commercial pilots in the U.S., Jeff, Dana, and Dr. Steph, and non-cowboy British chaps like Captain Nick. I was amazed how a seemingly cut-and-dry topic was dissected and analyzed from so many different perspectives. I do hope your audience learned something, and I was happy to contribute on the online chat. It was a lot of fun. Quick shout-out to Brandon at Podcasting on a Plane podcast. We were on the exact same sheet of music, and his feedback was spot on. Finally, my feedback regarding yet another dead horse. You guys opened another can of worms regarding a visual approach separation responsibility, and I think you made it seem a little more complicated than it really is. Yes, we can clear an aircraft for the visual approach if they are number one and have the runway in sight. Yes, we can clear an aircraft that is number two or three or four if they have the preceding aircraft in sight and agree to follow. The pilots then become responsible for, the, for following the lead aircraft, and the separation responsibility is removed from the controller. Don't get upset, Captain Nick. That doesn't mean you are released to the hounds. By then, the controller has shown you the traffic, perhaps told you their ground speed, and told you exactly how far away you are. The pilots have the information they need to determine what they will do to keep the applicable safe separation. They can slow down, widen out the base turn, etc. It's perfectly safe, legal, and customary. In fact, it's the technique used to keep planes moving in a factory production line in the United States. Here is where you get into the weeds, ever so slightly. We can also clear an aircraft in sequence, not number one, for the virtual approach if they have the airport in sight, but not the preceding aircraft. Air traffic control still keeps the separation responsibility since the crew cannot be expected to follow an airplane they didn't say they saw. At Triad, this technique is used quite often. The lead aircraft is far enough in front of the second aircraft that we won't lose separation, regardless of how close they keep it to the field or their speed adjustments. In other words, the sequence is irrelevant. The lead aircraft distance is great enough for us to ensure separation without the second pilot agreeing to follow. Either of these scenarios are safe and efficient, but I imagine the most commonly seen visual approach is one where the pilot has the airport and the preceding aircraft in sight, like Captain Jeff mentioned. It's a double bingo. Everyone wins. Follow him. Cleared for the visual approach. The end. Today, I'll give you my opinion on why this all matters. The key to understanding the techniques requires an, under an understanding of why we would use them in the first place. Well, it's simple. We want to clear you for the visual approach and send you to the tower. Before we say goodbye, we are required to resolve all conflicts, including lateral and vertical separation from other aircraft and 
wake turbulence distance minima. At triad, we have a lot of smalls, larges, and heavies mixed together. Our separation requirement for a small aircraft, for example, weighing less than 41,000 pounds behind a large aircraft weighing more than 41,000 pounds is four miles at the threshold. Not all quote-unquote small airplanes are slow. Some of them are rather quick and keep their speed up until they are close to the field. This is a case where I would make sure the lead aircraft is in sight before clearing the small aircraft for the visual approach. And I would say, traffic to follow, 2 o'clock, 5 miles, 3,000, CRJ. The small aircraft will then respond, we have the CRJ in sight. And I will say, follow the CRJ, caution wake turbulence, cleared visual approach, runway 23 right, contact tower. I have been relieved of my responsibility to separate the small from the large. He or she has taken that responsibility. But it's knowing that the safety margin is going to be maintained by the pilot who has a vested interest in staying far enough away from the airplane to avoid a wake turbulence encounter. A second scenario is also very common. Number two is a small at 4,000 feet on a downwind and has the field and lets us know sometimes more than once but does not have the preceding aircraft in sight. While we know if we clear them for the visual approach, then they will cause an immediate loss of separation, a separation requirement that ATC still retains if the small doesn't have the preceding aircraft in sight. So my technique to respond is simple. Roger, traffic to follow, 2 o'clock, 3 miles, heavy Boeing 767, 2,500 on a 4-mile final. I have given number two the reason why I can't clear him. If I did, and he cut in his base turn then at that point, he will presumably cut off the heavy Boeing. This is an incentive for the pilot to look harder, find the Boeing 767, and let the controller know you have them in sight. Otherwise, you're going to keep flying until the base turn will ensure lateral and wake turbulence separation before the controller clears you for the visual approach. Since number two is a small in this example, that requirement is six miles behind the heavy Boeing 767 at the threshold, much further than some pilots would like to fly if they were given the choice to follow the big bad 767 and remain high and above their flight path or continue on a downwind. Both options are safe. One just saves more gas. I flew with all types of captains at the airline, and the most common brief was... We don't accept a visual approach unless both pilots have the airport and the preceding aircraft in sight. That was fine with me. But I was also equally okay with accepting a visual approach clearance if the captain, flying pilot in this example, had the airport in sight but not the preceding aircraft. I understood the ATC responsibility. I was okay with that. Some captains would insist on waiting until they were turned onto the localizer or onto a final before calling either the field or the preceding aircraft. They did not want to accept separation responsibility, but would rather keep that squarely on the shoulders of air traffic. That was fine by me as well, but I know it frustrated some controllers. I certainly understand it a little bit better from this side of the microphone on the air traffic side. It's not a bash on Captain Nick, rather a chance to explain. The last thing that a landing crew wants to do in some airports, in some aircraft, is add one other item to their list of responsibilities. Flying the aircraft, performing checklists, and properly configuring an aircraft for landing is plenty of workload. Why add more by accepting the responsibility to fall another airplane when air traffic control can ensure that separation standard is maintained for you? 
I don't have a problem with either type of pilot. I just thought it was appropriate to explain there are two sides to this coin. Anywho, that's all for now. I'm doing my best to keep current on your show. Congratulations, Dr. Steph, on your marathon season. And I'll give AG a chance to respond a little bit to something you guys said the other day about Army pilots. Hey, everybody. It's AG. Um, yeah, I, I second... Uh, I second all of that from RH on uh, visuals, uh, following, sequencing. Uh, I would just add, if if you want the controller to keep the responsibility for separation, that's fine. Just expect additional heading changes, speed changes, um, to ensure that separation. So uh, they may not be headings or speeds that you agree with, but it's what the controller feels like needs to happen to make sure that that separation is ensured. So uh, that's uh, that's business out of the way. Um, I would like to say that I am glad that the search for a sharp army pilot is finally over. They found him. He's apparently a first officer at Acme Airlines, which makes sense because the one... The one guy in the army who had his wits about him, they got he got snatched up and taken out of the army. So, it, it's not you know it's not surprising. Um, I am glad though to hear that the search is finally over. Um, I don't, I, as a former helicopter pilot, I can't really speak to you know to that. I'm sort of a washed up has been. Uh, I'm not even an army fixed wing pilot at this point, so I really. Uh, I can't say, uh, I, I can't really speak to it either way, but uh, I am glad that the search is over. And uh, Captain Dana, thank you for uh, for letting us know. Uh, that being said, I, th- I think that's it. Um, I do appreciate it. Uh, love the uh, APG show, everybody's points of view. It's good. And uh, thanks for letting us, for letting us be part of the discussion. Have a great day. AG. And I will sign up. Rummy a hotel from opposing bases, air traffic. You know, I'm not sure that I caught the, uh, the name of their podcast. I, I, I didn't <laughs> either. Sadly, I, um, I fell asleep, uh, <laughs> during that. I mean, I know. I I got the first bit where they were talking about this show they do, but after that, I'm sorry. I just uh, I lost it. Uh, Nick, please tell me uh, what is it exactly? Uh, what is it that you're doing there with your beard? Oh, uh, I'm trialing a Christmas present I bought for my son. It's uh, it's christmas beard decorations beard ornaments there you go christmas beard ornaments and uh, i think they look quite fetching don't you (laughs) yeah it's a it's an interesting look uh i mean um, you need to look at the video (laughs) his beard is is pretty long so Uh it's gonna look i mean there's a whole box full of them so he'll be look he'll look pretty good i think so uh, so so obviously we're hearing the little bells uh ringing (laughs) yeah so so nick is wearing Christmas lights and bells on his beard. Yeah, and every absolutely. time he moves his mouth, uh, you can hear the bells ringing. 
I thought that was very appropriate uh, as a reply, perhaps a visual <laughs> reply to opposing bases feedback, which still basically goes down to uh, we don't want to bother with keeping you separated safely. We're just going to um, let you guys try and sort it out yourselves. And uh, if you ask for us to do it, we're going to like send you 15 miles downwind and add another 10 minutes to your flight time. So uh, don't do that. Wow, I took something entirely different from <laughs> that whole thing than you did, apparently. <laughs> okay. All right, okay. I think we're going to have to agree to differ there. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, uh, Luckily that... for me, flying a heavy, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's yeah. not much uh, that's going to upset me except a super, and uh, we usually get a fair bit of separation from that. Uh, we're going to be hearing Christmas bells for the rest of the show. I think. <laughs> you okay. know, they're, they're going to fall off my beard. I, I trimmed <laughs> it fairly short. Man. Just hang on. But they're very good. They've got little clips on them. So you can clip them onto your beard. And they've got little baubles and bells and mm -hmm. flashing lights. I think they're very cool. Yeah. Very uh, interesting. Very Christmassy, don't you think? Getting in the mood? Yes. Yes. I'm, you're, I'm now in the mood. Thank you. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, thank you, AG and RH, for sending that uh, well-thought-out uh, feedback. Yeah, and they made it long enough that I really didn't remember <laughs> what they were talking about by the time they finished. Note to self, don't play long feedback anymore. <laughs> Otherwise, Nick will put strange things on his beard. Uh, item seven, Josh. Um, he says, uh, cue the wow. Wow. Okay. Um, if you were in this situation, how would you handle it? This seems to me like a no-go issue. Thanks for the great show, Josh in Tulsa. And he's referring to an article link. Uh, the article is linked to, I mean, the link is, well, you know what I mean. Uh, the, uh, oh gosh, headline is, you can sit in your seat or you can be left behind. A Delta passenger forced to fly in a seat stained with feces. And there's a, so hmm. Matthew Meehan was on the last flight from Atlanta to Miami on November 1st when he realized that the plane hadn't been cleaned properly, but what he thought would be just another stinky flight turned out to be much worse. I will, I sit in my seat and I immediately smell something and I thought, not another flight that smells bad, Meehan tells Yahoo Lifestyle and he wasn't the only one who noticed. I realized the person next to me also had their nose covered, he said, and then I went to take my charger out, bent down completely to charge my phone, and realized it's not just a smell, it's actually feces, and it's all over the back of my legs, it's all over the floor, all over the wall of the plane, and I sat in it, he recalls. He and his seatmate went to the front of the plane to notify the flight crew as if the excrement weren't shocking enough. What was even more surprising was the response they got. The flight crew said, are you kidding me? We turned that in. I can't believe they didn't clean it. They knew it was there, Meehan says. Of course, they're talking about the cleaners uh, that are not uh, Delta employees. They're a contracted uh, service. Meehan knows for a fact that the Delta planes are required to have a biohazard kit on board for situations like this. The Delta rep uh, that spoke with me after the fact told me their protocol is to have a biohazard kit on board. The fact that they either didn't take it down and offer me something from it or clean myself properly or it was absent completely from the plane broke protocol either way. They said they didn't have one. Eh. 
Instead of calling the gate agent and asking for sanitizing products, Meehan alleges the flight attendant gave him two paper towels and a bottle of gin to clean himself with in the lavatory. Uh, And it goes on. So uh, apparently on a previous flight, there was a German Shepherd um, dog on board, and the animal uh, had some intestinal difficulties and uh, left some excrement on board the aircraft. And I am very, very uh, suspect as to his version of the story, especially some of the things that he alleges... um, the uh, Delta employees said to him, and they that just does not sound characteristic to me of a Delta employee saying any of these things that he claims were said. Um, and the, in the picture, you'll note, um, the only thing that I see is that a, a little bit of the bottom of his heel on his shoe has a little bit of uh, dog poo on it. Uh, the way he describes it and the way this article describes it, it sounds like it was splattered all over the place back there and then he was sitting in it. But uh, I, it's possible he may have gotten some of the dog excrement on maybe the back of his jeans or something like that because he didn't know that it, sh- it was on a shoe. Uh, but I think that he is um, blowing this thing completely out of proportion. But uh, the other thing that's kind of odd to me is that uh, he? Uh, the article says, and I don't know if this is true or not, after landing in Miami, again, remember that this was the last flight from Atlanta to Miami, so it was a late flight. Um, he was supposed to fly then to, or then fly to Tampa, but he says he took a four-hour Uber instead. I'm just not ready to get back on the plane. Well, first of all, if he was going to Tampa to begin with, there is an Atlanta to Tampa flight on Delta that leaves about the same time as the Atlanta to Miami flight. So I'm kind of wondering what was going on there. And then um, we don't, the I mean, not we, uh, the sister airline to Acme, Delta, does not have a flight from Miami to Tampa. Uh, so I don't know, it would have had to been on American Airlines or some regional Uh, not affiliated with Delta. Um, But anyway, um, I don't know. I I think that uh, this is a person that is just trying to get some more, something more from the company than his 50,000 miles that he was uh, offered in compensation. Um, And I, I don't really believe that any employee of our sister airline, Delta, uh, would have said some of the things he claims. I like the bit at the end where it's a classic, don't you know who I am? Where he says, I'm a diamond, a medallion, and a million miler. If this is how they treat their top tier, I can't imagine how they treat people who aren't part of the Sky Sky Miles program. Well, I suspect they treat just about everybody the same. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. He might have been a little bit upset that he didn't get one of those nice first-class seats or one of those uh, uh, economy comfort seats, perhaps. Mm, yeah. Um, not sure, but um, again, I mean, and I talked about this with uh, with some flight attendants at Acme, and uh, and and they had heard about this incident, and they said, but you know, the way that he described the uh, interaction with the flight attendants and gate agents and customer service supervisors, uh, they said, nah, this is not the way that anybody would you know, treat a passenger. So 
something is just not quite right. Something doesn't quite smell right about this. Yeah. I mean, literally. to be fair, though, I'm a little surprised that no one spotted it and the turnaround clean because it's. I think they did, though. Uh, yeah, the, the, the flight attendant, you know, the, earlier on in the article, the, the flight attendant says that he claims the, the flight attendant said, well, they knew about that. We told them about that. I'm surprised, you know, why didn't they clean that up? So, you know, obviously they knew that there was an issue. They asked cabin service to come in there and take care of it. And uh, apparently they never went back to double check that it was indeed cleaned up before they ended up starting boarding. A lot of times what happens is these things, you know, it's not like these international flights that Nick does. These domestic flights uh, have very tight turn times and it may have even been running a little bit late and they wanted to, you know, offload the passengers, quickly clean the cabin and get the boarding process um, initiated quickly. And something got perhaps got dropped uh, through the crack and uh, they didn't ensure that this area had been cleaned up properly. And if that's the case, then, you know, they, you know, that was a mistake. But again, I think, and we talk about this a lot, it's not necessarily what happens, it's how the, uh, the people react to the problem. And that's what really makes the difference. And if what he claims is true, uh, it's, uh, it's not good. But again, I'm very sus suspect. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm assuming like us, you guys have spare seat covers uh, so you can replace them uh, quickly mm -hmm. if there's been a problem and a bunch of blankets and things you can use to cover up stuff in a uh, an absolute emergency if there's no alternative. Um, right. Uh, and it would have taken a while to clean it. Last flight of the day, uh, cram full, you know, uh, there aren't that many options. Yes, Tony, that was a uh, probably an inadvisable um term to use uh, the slip through the crack <laughs> sorry uh, pun not intended uh, very good yeah so anyway i don't even know why we covered this one but uh we did we got and, covered in it yeah <laughs> and as i said it just doesn't smell right to me hmm. -doom, bam where's my rim shot all right very good, very good. eight G-Man, you know the guy that says that we were always uh, mispronouncing his... Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're about to find out how it's really pronounced? Yes. Oh, wow. And I think, didn't we all... I thought I remember having this kind of um, exchange with Steph, and I thought that he did... Have I already played this? I don't know. We we did hear him say it. We couldn't make out uh, what he how he pronounced his own name very clearly, but it sounded just like we had... Yeah. Uh, said it. if it's the same piece of feedback then yes we covered it last year oh actually um this is only 37 seconds long though let me let me play this see what i got here hello apg crew is glaucus here the g-man from down under thank you for okay attending. liz says that this is new so cool. i don't know maybe i just had uh some kind of, this is like a deja vu moment for deja me right deja vu all over again yeah okay um, well, let me read what he sent in first. He says, uh, hello, APG team, captains, Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Dr. Steph. It's G man from down under again. Uh, thank you so much for addressing my feedback on episode 348. I felt really important by having my questions answered by celebrities. Oh, do we have celebrities on that show? I don't, don't I remember, remember having celebrities on that. Yeah, it would have been enjoyable to hear uh, his question answered by celebrities. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, 
I'll have to look listen back on that one. Only after I heard the audio on the show, I realized how poor the recording was. Uh, my sincere p- apologies for that. Let's try again in a later stage. But n- for now, an email should suffice. I sense there was a bit of a debacle on the pronunciation of my name. Oh, so wait a minute. So this audio, Liz, was that from the earlier, um, the earlier show? Maybe I played this feedback. Um, the audio feedback earlier, and then this non-audio feedback is actually the new feedback. I'm all confused. Why don't hmm. we play it and see? No, it's new no, audio. No, she said it's new audio. Oh, there you go. Wow. Okay. Maybe I should have gotten more sleep last night. They saw okay. the turkey. Yeah. Well, you know what? I didn't have any turkey, believe it or not. Oh, the lack of turkey then. Yeah. Okay. Um so I'm going to continue this uh, paragraph again. Only after I heard the audio on the show, I realized how poor the recording was. My sincere apologies for that. Let's try again at a later stage. But for now, an email should suffice. I sensed there was a bit of a debacle on the pronunciation of my name. And I must say, Captain Jeff, you got it right. I sent you some short audio with the pronunciation of my name. So feel free to listen to it at your perusal. I hope the audio is better this time. Oh, okay. Now that makes sense. Most people, however, call me G as I have too many variants to my name that I lost count. So keeping it simple is the key. So feel free to keep using G-Man as it is easier. Thanks again for your time. And as I said, there were other subjects I would like your feedback and advice on. So here is the main one. Since I started listening to your show, the aviation bug that was buried deep inside me resurfaced. Thanks to you and the community who made the subject even more interesting and involving. At the end of 2017, I changed my relatively successful career in IT rather drastically to focus on our family business, a couple of medical clinics as my wife is a doctor. And now that everything is settled, I feel I can finally give my lifelong dream another go. I have always dreamt of becoming an airline pilot. The skill, attention to detail, constant learning, and level of knowledge required resonate very well with me. I started investigating how that would be possible and found out that in the Australian uh, that in Australia the government supports the training by offering finance to specific aviation schools who look after all aspects of flying from nothing to becoming a commercial rated pilot with over 200 hours under your belt. It almost sounds too good to be true, but it got me seriously excited. With a bit of effort and compromise, I could finance my own studies independently of any external aid, but having this support from the government to citizens is absolutely brilliant, and I thank the government for that. I started making inquiries, did another discovery flight, which I loved, see the enclosed photo of the day we picked for the flight, and started going through my documentation to get on with the training. I love the feeling of being in the air and being in control of an aircraft. But for me, it has to serve a purpose. It would be well and good to have a license to take my family up on weekends away on a rented plane, but what I would really like uh, is to become a professional in the area. Fly to an airline. Fly to an airline would be the ultimate goal. Okay, flying for an airline would be the ultimate goal. But I'd probably be happy with something that assists the community, such as the Royal Flying Doctors Service available in Australia. Everything was going super well, and I was excited to start my training in early 2019. I guess that's coming up. Uh, Until a chat with a neighbor who is an aviation engineer raised some serious concerns. 
I'm turning 40 next year. And he said that the chances of being hired by an airline at that age were minimal as they look for younger candidates to get more out of their supposed investment in training. He went further and said that the hire of anyone over 32 would be very unusual by our local carriers, Qantas, Virgin, Jetstar, Rex, and Tiger. And the training offered by the schools funded by TAFE, the body who supports education in Australia, were nowhere near the minimum required. This was a massive blow to me, as I thought that having potentially over 20 years of service to off the airlines would be enough to be considered. Qantas is building a pilot academy to be opened in 2019, and Rex has a well-known program that has been around for a while, so the demand is apparently there. However, he still said my chances would be slim. I would be even happy to fly for an international carrier as long as I can get back home on a regular basis. But now I'm also unsure on whether that's a possibility given my age. I must say that the news got me extremely disappointed as I was looking forward to the challenge and to fulfill my lifelong dream. Mind you, I don't have the slightest problem with working for my goals or working hard for my goals and progressing through the ranks as part of the process. But I wouldn't like to get into a game that is already lost where the prize is unachievable by definition and end up with another hobby. I'm looking for a career that does not necessarily have to be high paid but mostly enjoyed. As Albert Einstein once said, Do a job you love, and you won't have to work a single day in your life. That's what I'm uh, after. So I'm turning to you and the community with this question. Is that really true? Your opinion is not binding, of course, but I would really like to hear your perspective on this. Also, if anyone in the community, possibly local to Australia, has any advice on how these schools are or any other thoughts on my potential journey, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to share my contact details, and I will. Um, I'm uh, sort of running out of time as I have to make a call on whether to enroll in next year's training or not. So any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thank you again for the fantastic podcast. You have no idea how much your wise words and stories are an inspiration to many of us flying lovers out there. I'm sure listening to you every week is a big highlight, not only to me, but to many others. So keep up the great work. Blue skies, tailwinds, and God bless from down under Glaucus, the G-Man, signing off. And here's his little bit of feedback that goes with it before we address his questions. Hello, APG crew. It's Glaucus here, the G-Man from down under. Thank you for attending to my feedback on APG 348. I really appreciate that. And to address the question about my name, so here it is again, Glaucus. Apparently, this is a name of a Greek god and a Roman emperor. And how my mom got to that name, I have no idea. One good thing is if someone calls me in a crowd, I definitely know it's me. Anyway, I've sent you some more feedback, and it's regarding a career change. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much for all you do. Really appreciate. Love the show. Thank you. I should have played, played that before I read his feedback. Oh, well. And you can always fit it in post. Glauk. Well, I won't. Um, Glaucus, uh, I love your Australian accent. Glaucus, uh, yeah, it's going to be either you or a Greek god that answers, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, just a reminder, uh, Glaucus is, uh, I think, originally Brazilian, correct? And he is uh, living in Australia and has been for a number of years. 
uh, hasn't quite picked up that Australian accent that I can detect anyway. Uh, so that question you have, um, I'm not sure that maybe the uh, aviation engineer that you spoke with that kind of ba- basically threw water on your hot burning coals uh, was correct. But again, I can't really answer from the perspective of what the situation is in Australia. But I suspect it's very similar to many other parts of the world where I think that what the engineer was telling you may have been true 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it would have been true in most places around the world. You know, being 40 years old, yeah, kind of old to get started in this career field. Um, and uh, I don't, I, again, I don't know the specific situation for the pilot shortage or pending shortage in Australia myself. Perhaps somebody out there listening to the show right now uh, can take the time to send us some either audio or non-audio feedback to, uh, or even contact Glaucus directly to uh, let him know what you think about this. But this is an important decision for uh, the G-Man to make, and he, I guess he needs to make it pretty soon. So what, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I, I don't think he should be um, too intimidated uh, and go straight to the horse's mouth. So if you've reeled off uh, um, several um, major airlines in Australia, uh, Glaucus, write to them and ask them if they have a minimum age and if they can offer you advice as to what would be an acceptable maximum age. So don't just say, am I okay to uh, apply? Because the employment laws may require them to say yes, but also ask them uh, their advice as to uh, how easy will it be for him to get a job with them uh, and try and you know catch it in the way that you're looking for advice not for a legal decision um, because uh, I suspect if they're anything like the UK they're not allowed to discriminate on age in which case uh, they're bound to say yes uh, and of course with that in mind if I'm pretty certain Australia they're a pretty forward-thinking country uh, probably has the same legislation um, they by law they can't discriminate against you um, if uh, you apply for a job at the age of 40 or even 50. So then it's really up to you in deciding whether the money you'll make will be good enough at that point in your life. Uh, and will you get high enough up the aviation tree, or the pilot tree, to be on a decent wage uh, by the time you uh, finish? Um, all those sort of things have to be added up. Uh, my opinion is probably the same as Jeff's. Go for it um, because um, the situation is changing very fast in the uh, world of aviation and uh, the number of pilots they're going to need in the next uh, few years is going to be quite impressive. And uh, I think you will probably get a job and fulfill your dream. But make sure you do that those background checks first of all. Make sure you're comfortable. Don't just rely on the word of one neighbor and allow him to... Uh, spoil what might have been a fantastic second career. That is so true. Uh, I um, also agree uh, with everything that uh, Captain Nick just said. Um, the Now, it is true that you go through these programs, this training program with a little over 200 hours. Uh, that's not going to be enough in most cases, as far as I know, uh, to get hired by uh, an air carrier. You're going to have to do some other work. You know, you're going to have to be a, a flight instructor for a bit or banner tower or survey pilot. We talk about it all the time on our show, how 
people uh, have done that and are now successful and are flying for regional airlines. And before you know it, they're going to be hired by the majors. I'm sure of it. Well, absolutely. There are lots of instructional jobs out there. My uh, niece is flying in Australia and is working her way slowly through various instructional jobs, and now she works for a, a charter outfit. Um, so, yeah, it's doable. She, she happens to be a reasonably young lady um, and very attractive, but I'm sure that's uh, not a problem for you. You can overcome that. Perhaps you put some baubles in your beard like me and... They'll, they'll hire you straight away. You'd have to watch the video to understand that joke. Um, but uh, no, uh, I, I, there are there are lots of flying jobs around. And if you don't have the ambition to to hit the majors straight away, particularly, and you would like to work for the uh, RFDS for a while, um, then I think that's a very worthwhile job and would be great fun. And there are, there are quite a few flying jobs to be had, certainly up around the Northern Territories, but. That kind of flying um, may keep you away from your family for a while. I don't know. You'd, you'd have to investigate it. I'm, I'm not that well up on the flying situation in Oz right now. Yeah, uh, exactly what Nick said. Just you know, find out for yourself. Don't rely upon this uh, as, as knowledgeable as this avian, aviation engineer neighbor of yours is. He may be, you know, basing that uh, opinion about things on, you know, what the situation was like just a few years back. Uh, things have changed and things are continuing to change rapidly. So uh, go, figure it out. And uh, and I say go for it as well. You'll be happy you did. Absolutely. Okay. Nine. Um, or at what point are we now? Are we at about the two hour point yet? Yeah, we're just about there. Okay. Well, then, I usually try to fit the uh, best part of the show, the plane tales by the old pilot, at around the two-hour mark. And if we're there, I think then, is uh, this would be a nice time to play it. So here we go. The old pilot's plane tales, a four-star conversation. I recently talked to Sir Richard Johns, retired Royal Air Force Chief of the Air Staff and Air Chief Marshal of four-star rank, about his book, Bolts from the Blue. After our discussion, which features on the podcast Plane Talking UK, I was able to move the conversation onto his interest in aviation history, a subject that fascinates us both. I hope that you'll find this as interesting as I did. So, uh, moving on to uh, aviation history, yeah. one of my great loves. Um, what aspects of uh, history have uh, intrigued you, and w what do you sort of uh, like delving into? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the history of the formation of the Royal Air Force is absolutely fascinating. Uh, equally fascinating is the story of its survival uh, after the First World War, when, for reasons I can well understand, uh, predatory uh, admiralty and war office wanted it back. They wanted that Royal Naval Air Service, the Royal Flying Corps, back. Um, you know, the, the First World War ended far more sooner than anyone expected, as you probably know. I mean, formed 1st of April, war ended in November. Um, so I, I I've always found that very interesting. And how uh, Trenchard dug the foundations of the Royal Air Force so strongly when he became CS by Cramwell, officers, Halton, apprentices, 
uh, Andover Staff College. And he laid those foundations very deliberately at some expense to the front line, in the sense that if you look at what the Royal Air Force was flying uh, in India and Iraq and places like that in the early 30s, I mean, the airplanes they were flying weren't all that much different from what they'd been flying in the First World War. Um, but of course, in those days, they could go and do the job uh, where they were flying. One, because the weather was by and large better. And two, um, because there wasn't any problem of fighting for aerial superiority or tactical a- aerial superiority. And I don't know enough about it. I, I, it's one of those things I ought to read a lot more about, is, although I know enough about it to get by, is what the Air Force was actually doing in detail. I've heard some very nice stories, anecdotal type stories, but I'd like to look at that a, a, a wee bit um, more, 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 di- more deeply. Um, the irony of, is of, of the 30s, in my view, is that Trenchard's addiction to the doctrine of the offensive and bombers was accepted by the politicians. You know, they, they, they accepted this. So... What then happened, of course, is as one got, uh, as, uh, as the country recognised the emerging threat of, of Germany and the very rapid expansion of, of the Luftwaffe with this uh, very large bombing force being brought into service, that all of a sudden the um, procurement emphasis switched from bombers to fighters. And I mean, you know, it's it, absolutely amazing the way that happened. So we went to war in 39 with you know, a, 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 a growing fighter force with very, two very good aeroplanes, you know, obviously the Spitfire and the Hurricane, but with a bomber force that just wasn't up to the job. Oh, the losses in the first part uh, the, of the war were dreadful, weren't they? They, they were absolutely dreadful because the, you know, the, the, the aeroplanes, I mean, e- even the most advanced at that time, what are we talking about, the Hamden and the Blenheim, uh, they were daylight only. They were totally inadequately equipped to defend themselves against you know, 109s and contemporary type fighters at that stage. Nav aids, what nav aids do they have? Were they any good at navigation? No, they weren't, because they actually hadn't trained very hard at navigation. So you know, in the early days of the war, uh, it, it, I always found it very ironic that Trenchard's doctrine on the offensive was completely overturned, one by his addiction to it and the way he used to spell out the, um, the need for a strong bomber force led actually to the, to the introduction of this hugely efficient uh, air defence force. And uh, as I've said in there, I, in my sort of attitudes and prejudices bit, I think that if the Navy and the Army had had their way back in the, uh, in the early 20s, and we've gone back, neither individually nor together would they have ever constructed the air defence system in the air and on the ground, most importantly, that actually withstood the onslaught of the Luftwaffe in 1940. Quite convinced of that. I just don't think they'd ever have done that. So we can thank Trenchard for not only maintaining the Royal Air Force as a unique unit, but also really for giving us that edge during the initial part of the war where we had to push back... The German forces? Yes. Um, well, not quite the way that he saw it happening, but, the, but it did happen, um, uh, and so on. And, well, you know, this, well, I don't want to talk about the bomber offensive, but um, very, very interesting. Absolutely. I mean, that's another thing which does interest me quite considerably. Brilliant. Examining that part of the war, then, um, the bomber force became uh, a really um, 
huge part of taking the war to Germany. Yes. Um, there are some very controversial uh, targets that were chosen during the war, which, with a modern eye, the general public often look at and think that was the wrong thing to do. But you see a different view. Yeah. I, I think that um, the destruction of, of, of German cities uh, was, was, was inevitable uh, in the sense that you know, this was total war. And people these days, I think, uh, of more recent generations, don't quite understand that not only was that total war was a war of national survival. And after the defeats of the first couple of years of the war, I mean, the army had been defeated in Norway, uh, France, Crete. Uh, it was a long list, litany, of, of very serious defeats. The Navy, um, with at that stage... Not a lot, well, a significant, but not a lot of support from Coastal Command were fighting this ferocious struggle um, in the Atlantic in, in 41 as it was getting tougher and tougher, and indeed in the Mediterranean. So when we were alone, and the only way that we had of hitting back at Germany was through Bomber Command. And although their raids were, at that stage, were largely ineffectual, I think there were two consequences. The first was that Germany was not going to be absolved from its aggression. There was a price to pay for aggression. That was the first thing. And even more importantly, strategically, in my view, these operations were being watched very closely by the Soviet Union and the Americans. And they knew that we're up for the fight. We weren't just going to cave in. And I think that in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in terms of what was to happen with uh, Pearl Harbor, Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union and so on, they knew that we were going to be there with them and so on. And I think that strategically obviously was very important. But as the Bomber Command offensive began to um, expand, and particularly, of course, with the in introduction of the big bombers in 42, I'm talking specifically about the Lancaster and the Halifax, um, and new marking techniques and so on and so forth, the ability of the command to inflict severe damage on Germany expanded and expanded. And, of course, then with the Americans joining in, uh, with the 8th, US, 8th Army Air Force and so on, it became around a clock the operation. And attacking cities was necessary from two viewpoints, or well, from two points of view. The first one, of course, was to attack German industry and to slow down their rate of war production. And the second was, of course, that Germany's control of uh, Europe, its war on the Eastern Front, was significantly dependent on rail transport. And these places that we were attacking weren't only centres of industry, they were also very important transport nodes to get you know, bits of U-boat out for assembly and so on and so forth. Ammunition, to the, particularly to the Eastern Front, so all this was, was, a, was a very wide-ranging campaign that opened up a second front long before D-Day. And I think that's, you know, that strategically was hugely important. And then when you get on to the more controversial issues, and of course probably the most controversial was Dresden, um, I think you've got to put it into context. 
uh, at Dresden was, I can't remember the precise dates, but it was around about February 13th, 14th, 1945. And I've got a book over there. Uh, I've got books all over the place. But uh, Anthony Beaver in his book on the Second World War says Dresden was a city too far. Max Hastings is a huge um, critique. He, he, he just believes we just went on smashing German cities almost just for the sheer hell of it. Well, not true. Uh, unlike them, I was living in the country at the time. I was living in Deal, uh, or just outside Deal, warmer. And I can remember as a young boy, V1s uh, coming over. And I knew full well as a boy that if you heard the noise, you were OK. If you didn't hear the noise, it wasn't OK. And the best thing was to get down. And I can remember sheltering under the kitchen. We didn't have a bomb shelter where we lived. Uh, getting under the kitchen table where, as these things were dug, 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 over their way towards London. Um, because my father at that stage had come back from sea and was serving in the Royal Marines barracks at Deals before he joined 31, in, 31 Infantry Battalion Royal Marines uh, over in, in Europe. So I can remember that. And people forget that from, nine, from about, eight, I forget when it was, June 44, right through to March 45, we were under attack from, first of all, V1s, over 10,000 were launched, well, of only what, yes, of a vast yeah, number. Yeah, vast numbers. And <clears throat> even more dangerous and worrying were V2s. Now, they, we were still under attack from those weapons when Dre the Dresden raid was authorised. But why was it authorised? The war was not won. Uh, then we had suffered the setback of Arnhem. The Germans had launched a huge offensive, the Ardennes Offensive, which took over a month to halt and to drive back. We had not crossed the Rhine. Ferocious fighting on the Eastern Front. Yalta Conference. Churchill goes to the Yalta Conference and Stalin says, what can you do to help? We'll be very grateful, I suppose if that's the way he put it, if you could um, attack the transport nodes, Chemnitz, Leipzig, and Dresden, to do two things. One, to stem the flow of reinforcements from the west to the east, and secondly, to cause conf confusion from the thousands fleeing now from the advance of, of the Red Army. And Churchill agreed at the conference. Now, it, it is debatable whether or not Dresden was mentioned as a specific target, although the official interpreter at the time says it was, but it wasn't in the formal record of the meeting. And that decision was then went down to the air headquarters, uh, the, the, the uh, Supreme Allied uh, Headquarters, and it was agreed that Dresden would be attacked. Harris, believe it or not, challenged that decision. Why did he challenge it? It wasn't because you know, he, he was going soft, and uh, bombing German cities no longer was on his agenda. It was simply the distance that from the UK to Dresden. And he had recalled the difficult, not the difficulties, the dangers of long-range penetration into Germany when um, we attacked Nuremberg the year before and lost what, over 90 bombers wow. in, in one raid. Wow. Oh, yeah, sorry, over 500 aircrew. And that was the deepest penetration bomber command I think had done at that time. And he thought, well, they asked me now to go to Dresden, which is just as far, if not further. Hmm. And remember then that by then, 
Messerschmitt 262s were coming into service. Schnorkel U-boats were at sea. And so the idea that the war was soon going to be over was, hang on a moment, it's not going to be over. We thought it was going to be over before Christmas. Well, what's happening now? New technology, are they going to challenge our superiority in the air and at sea? Don't know. Well, there was, there was uncertainty. Uh, but Harris was told, no, you get on and do it. And of course, again, another irony was of the whole operation was the Americans were due to attack first in daylight. It was going to be, the first raid was going to be a daylight raid, escorted, of course, by Mustangs. And then Bomber Command was going to do the follow-up raid at night. The daylight raid was cancelled because of weather. Bomber Command went in first at night. Bomber Command got, the, got all the, you know, the, the, the publicity, the bad publicity that came out of what was looked upon as unnecessary and unwanted destruction. Although Dresden did make its own input to the German uh, arms industry and so on. And of course, as soon as that happened, well, not as soon as it happened, as soon as the destruction, the dreadful destruction of this lovely old city, and, 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 you know, which was, was a beautiful place and so on, became evident. Everyone backed off. Not me, chief. I had nothing to do with it. Hmm. And, of course, Harris took the full blame publicly for it. And his reputation, of course, uh, suffered as a consequence. It's been a long time for the job of the Bomber Command during the war to be fully recognised. Yes. Uh, have you attended uh, any of the opening of the recent uh, memorial? Oh, yes. I, I was at the opening of the Bomber Command Memorial, uh, just opposite the RAF Club up there, Hyde Park. Yes. Long, long overdue. Absolutely. And a touching moment, I'm sure. It was. It was, um, it, what I do remember about it, it was a boring hot day. Fabulous. You, you mentioned Coastal Command, very much a forgotten force, but one that did a fantastic job. And I bring it up particularly... Not in there. No, not in there. <laughs> but I bring it up particularly because my father flew Sunderland's for the Royal oh, Australian Air Force out of Plymouth during the war and his job was uh, yeah. convoy protection but they did a remarkable job in helping to stem that dreadful oh, uh, yes. attack of the u-boats well i mean the, the it, it was the 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 atlantic campaign um, was a genuine joint endeavor royal navy royal air force coastal command in the very early days before the war i, I believe i'm right in saying that the navy felt that they could deal with it um, and, of course, there weren't all that many U-boats around at the beginning of the war, but the German production of U-boats accelerated very, very quickly. And, and by 1942, I can't remember the tonnage of shipping we were losing, but, I mean, it, it was a phenomenal amount of, of shipping was going down. And that shipping, of course, was absolutely vital, not just to feed the nation, but also to bring all the stuff across that was going to be needed for the invasion of Europe. And it wasn't until the end of 42, beginning of 43, that we started to get the upper hand against the U-boats and uh, Ultra and all sorts of other things, you know, were playing their part in this. But by the end of the war, the, the, the Royal Air Force Coastal Command had sunk something like 189 U-boats, uh, destroyed, I forget what the figure was, 400-odd uh, surface ships uh, using bow fighters. Uh, and, and I think mosquitoes also uh, were deployed into... Uh, Coastal Command at the end of the war. I'm not sure about that. But certainly bow fighters in the anti-shipping role. And then Sunderland's and uh, Catalina's and goodness knows what else uh, in the anti-U-boat uh, war. 5,000 Coastal Command aircrew were killed during the war. One forgets that. 
Uh, they also won a number of Victoria Crosses as well during the war. Yeah, but they, they very rarely feature. No, I mean, I mean, the sheer, I mean, I have met Coastal Command aircrew who never saw a U-boat, you know, who flew for two, three years mm. and never saw one. Then you meet others. And I met uh, both the two Victoria, surviving Victoria Cross holders, both of whom are Coastal Command aircrew, uh, at the 80th birthday of the Royal Air Force, which I, which I had to host. And they were both Coastal Command men. Brilliant. Any other aspects you'd like to bring up before we uh, bring this to a close? I, I think, you know, when I look back on it, I mean, pe- people ask me, you know, well, you know, would, would you do it again? Of course I would. I mean, in my career, there were moments of, of great sadness. You know, I saw you know, too many friends killed in flying accidents. Um, but when I think back on it, the fun of the job, the professionalism of the job, the flying these amazing aeroplanes, which I was so lucky to fly uh, and to keep flying until I left the, left the service, was, was a great joy, a great jo- delight. And it was a great privilege to have done all of this. But what I've tried to do in that book, I mean, an autobiography is by definition egocentric. And of course, that book is egocentric. But I've tried to widen the scope of it uh, to give some impression of an Air Force changing from the one that I joined in 57, which was over 200,000 strong with 11 commands worldwide, to one that I left in 2000 that was 53,000 strong with two commands. And the change of the Air Force over this time but one, I like to think, never lost its spirit, its ethos, its enthusiasm uh, and its professional efficiency. And that's what I've tried to do um, in that book. So thank you very much for listening to me so patiently and indeed for your time. Thank you very much. Sir. Wow, what a what a man and what a um, great interview, Captain Nick. Well, thank you. It was it was a, a very easy interview to do. Uh, he has a wealth of experience, and uh, he was quite happy to carry on the conversation uh, without much of an input from me. And I just soaked it up. It was uh, brilliant and a, a pleasure to talk to him. Wow! Um, and the book that he wrote was—I um, know you probably Bolts mentioned from it. the blue. That's right, uh, because he often uh, seemed to. Uh, move from job to job uh, with very little notice. Uh, sadly, you know, one chap would be put into a senior post or was put into a senior post, and he died within two weeks of arriving. And uh, Sir Richard was promptly called in to take his place at absolutely no notice. And you know, he moved, seemed to move around uh, from job to job, often um, quite fortuitously because um, people were fired or people moved away and uh, he, he climbed that greasy pole very easily. Wow. Very, uh, very interesting. Oh, and a lo- lovely man. And uh, his super wife, uh, Lady Elizabeth, she uh, looked after us very well. And what a lovely hostess. I'll bet. Had some uh, nice little finger sandwiches or something. Oh, a nice bowl of, uh, I guess, vegetable soup. Uh, very nice and crusty bread. Ooh, that sounds very good. Mm. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's hard for me to believe that I'm actually hungry after all the food that I had yesterday. <laughs> but... <laughs> all right. Uh, let's continue on. Uh, nine. Gordon writes, this is Gordon from L.A., longtime listener, brand new Patreon supporter. Thank you. We love our patrons. 
and with a bit of audio feedback on Captain Nick's latest plane tales about the legendary Biggles. So here we go. Hello, APG crew. This is Gordon from Los Angeles, and I just wanted to thank Captain Nick for his excellent job of telling the tale of Captain W.E. Johns and his famous creation, Biggles. Famous, anyway, in all civilized countries, as Captain Nick so helpfully points out. I grew up in Ireland, and from an early age, I was an avid reader of the Biggles books. They nurtured a passion for aviation that's lasted my whole life. At one point, I very excitedly answered an ad in the back of a flying magazine that promised to train me to become a pilot free of charge. Imagine my disappointment when I got back a letter politely informing me that they did not accept 11-year-old Irish citizens in the Royal Air Force. Oh well, their loss. I kept on reading Biggles right through the late 60s, even though it did finally occur to me that anyone who flew in World War I and World War II, and then served in the Special Air Police, had to be getting a bit old to engage in such strenuous adventuring. I was kind of expecting the next book in the series to be Biggles Breaks His Hip. Anyway, thanks to Captain Nick for another great plane tales, and to Captain W.E. Johns and Biggles for lighting that flame. Years later, living in Southern California, I was finally fortunate enough to earn my private pilot certificate and instrument rating. So there, RAF. Finally, while on the subject of fictional characters, I have to mention something that I've been thinking about since I listened to my first APG podcast almost three years ago. Your recorded intro for the feedback segment features the voice of Michael Dorn, who played Lieutenant Worf in Star Trek The Next Generation. I wondered at the time if you were aware of the aviation tie-in there. Maybe you did in an earlier podcast and I never heard it. Michael Dorn is an avid pilot based, I think, at Van Nuys Airport just a few miles from my home base. At one time or another, he's owned a Lockheed T-33 Shooting Star, an F-86 Sabre fighter jet, a Sabre liner, and a Beach Baron. So there's a real aviation connection to your feedback intro. So that's it from me. Thanks to the whole APG crew for the great podcast, to Captain Nick for the always fascinating plane tales, and to Captain Jeff for bringing it all to life. As Biggles would say, cheerio. Captain, incoming message. Actually, I didn't. I had no idea. No, neither did I. I, I recognize who it was. Uh, yeah. That voice is uh, is very easy to recognize, but uh, no, brilliant. Yeah, he should so have I'd been look- a helmsman then instead of chief of security, shouldn't he? Right. I, I looked up uh, Michael Dorn on Wikipedia, and he's a member of the AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. And as... Uh, Gordon mentioned uh, he has flown several or owns several jet aircraft, a Lockheed T-33 Shooting Star, which he jokingly refers to as his starship. Oh, very good. A North American F-86 Sabre. And he refers to as his cat? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so that is so cool. I I, uh, did not know all of these connections, so... I just thought it would be a cool way to do introduce our feedback segment, actually. Um, yeah, and regarding the thing about Biggles, uh, uh, what do you what do you say about that? 
Oh, well, it's so nice that uh, Biggles has inspired yet another pilot. And uh, I thought uh, Biggles Breaks His Hip would have been a perfect uh, <laughs> um, name for a book. That was brilliant. Um, Biggles in a Wheelchair as well, would be another one, um, as he would be by now. Um, I, I do note, though, that um, uh, it had um, Gordon lived in the other part of Ireland, he would have had no problem joining the Royal Air Force since uh, if he'd been north of the border, he would have been fine. I suspect he lived south of the border. Ah, yes. And Apparently they, so. But glad he got his license in the end. That was good. Yeah, basically what he was saying is, stick it, RAF. Exactly. And toodle pit <laughs> back, back at you, old sport. All right. Thanks, Gordon, for the feedback. Moving on. Uh, Mike, 10. I've been reading John Farley's A View from the Hover, and he has a link there, uh, Amazon.com link to this book. Uh, he says, what a great book. It really shows how strong the Brits have been in aviation. I thought this book would be about John Farley's time as the chief test pilot of the Harrier, but that's only part of the book. The rest is well-presented and simply stated aeronautical engineering and real-life how and why aircraft work and how to be a way better pilot. Anyone would like this book, but I think Captain Nick would especially enjoy it. Secondly, and that might be another one for uh, our librarian oh, Tiffany to yeah. add to the uh, growing list of uh, a aviation literature in the uh, APG library. Um, anyway, uh, secondly, I'm attaching a low-res video from a wedding I was at recently. Uh, there was an a cappella group called Custom Blend, and their very first song was Java Jive. Recording the whole thing would have been too long, so this was just to give you the flavor. So he sent um, this little snippet, and I'll play a little bit of it. <laughs> So it was a, a video as well. And, Great uh, bit of acapella, is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, acapella, yeah. Very good. Uh, the acapella group is uh, Custom Blend. Again, thank you for letting us uh, hear some of that. And thank you for your uh, recommendation for the book, A View from the Hover. Or Hover, as you would say, right? Hover. Hover. I don't think that sounded a bit uh, Israeli, Havar. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sounds like a religious festival. <laughs> well, maybe it is. You never know. Uh, let's see. I'm going to jump around a little bit more now because uh, Liz, our producer, is informing me that we have uh, under 30 minutes remaining, probably closer to 20 now uh, in the show today. So... I'd like to move down to Vernon's audio feedback. What do you think? Vernon Tryon? Yeah, sure. Hello, APG crew. This is Vernon in Fort Morgan, Colorado. During APG 345, I felt chills up and down my spine during Captain Nick's plane tale, The Wave Scrapers, when he mentioned Gil Rob Wilson, founder of the Civil Air Patrol. Let me explain. In the 1960s, when I was in high school at Claremont, California, I happened to live within a few blocks of Mr. Wilson. Uh, 
and one of my favorite memories from my learning-to-fly years was the visits I had with him. I remember I would call his wife to see if he was up for a visit, and if he was, I was able to see him for short periods of time. As his wife put a blanket tenderly over him, he would start talking about his flying memories. At that time, I didn't realize he was dying of a bone marrow disease, but I cherished the few minutes that we would have together now and again. I suspect his wife let me come in in order to get his mind off his health. During one of my visits in April of 1966, he gave me a copy of his book, The Airman's World, a memorable portrait of the world of the sky, which he copyrighted in 1957. At the beginning of the book, this dedication is printed to all those who, from the beginning created, and in the present sustain, and in the future fulfill human destiny on the skyways of the universe, this book is dedicated. Below that, he hand-wrote a note to me. Just keep your nose out of the ground, Vern. The best advice one pilot can give another. And he signed it, Gil Rob Wilson, April of 1966. He died in September of that year. As a private pilot, I graduated from high school in June of 1966 and would spend the summer in Europe with the American Youth Hostel. Mr. Wilson wrote a letter of introduction for me and encouraged me to visit the Royal Aero Club in London. I treasure the memory of that Royal Aero Club visit. And my visits with Mr. Wilson may have been my first exposure to the Civil Air Patrol, which I later joined after I moved to Colorado. How often have we, as pilots, said that being a flyer is being a member of a close-knit worldwide group. This story seems to be another example of that. Thank you to my new friend, Captain Nick, for the story of Gil Rob Wilson. This is Vernon Tryon, retired CFI, former air traffic controller, and former captain, Civil Air Patrol. Wow, you really uh, touched a vein there. Well, it's so nice, isn't it? I mean, to um, bring back that memory and uh, to actually to have someone who was such an integral part of uh, the Air Patrol and to have known him personally. What a, what, how brilliant is that? It's fantastic. Very brilliant. Brilliant! By the way, he's been somewhere I haven't, into the Royal Aero Club. It's quite a fancy little spot. Um, oh. They're at the fine organization. They uh, run all the British air sports and that sort of thing. They've got a fine history. Um, so there you go. Their patron, they, they have a Patreon as well. Their patron is, or better pronounced patron, is Her Majesty the Queen. Come, do you think she'll be a patron for us? <laughs> oh, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, let's work on that. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> and then I can retire earlier. Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Hey, Texas Charlie sent this interesting bit of uh, news. Uh, let's see. He says, howdy, guys and gals. Today's question, what's the craziest thing you've done to help out a customer? I think the guys would need to work hard to do better than this Philippine Airlines flight attendant. And so we click on the link here. And the headline, a flight attendant breastfeeds passenger's baby after mother runs out of formula on a plane. 
Philippine Airlines flight attendant Patricia uh, Organo is being praised for breastfeeding a passenger's baby after the mother ran out of formula. In a viral Facebook post shared Wednesday, uh, Organo, 24, says she offered to help out the mother after she heard the hungry baby crying. After takeoff, I heard an infant's cry, a cry that will make you want to do anything to help. I approached the mother and asked if everything was okay. And she wrote, I tried to tell her to feed her hungry child. Teary-eyed, she told me that she ran out of formula. She continued, I felt a pinch in my heart. There's no formula milk on board. I thought to myself, there's only one thing I could offer, and that's my own milk. And so I offered. Her post, which includes a photo of herself holding the baby, has over 145,000 likes, over 6,000 comments, and has been shared nearly 30,000 times. Argano explained she and the mother went to a private area of the plane to feed the baby. The baby started rooting. She was so hungry, she wrote. I saw the relief on her mother's eyes. I continued to feed the baby until she fell asleep. I escorted her back back to her seat, and just before I left, the mother sincerely thanked me. Uh, Organo told Yahoo that she has a nine-month-old daughter of her own, and so she recognizes the difference between a cry of hunger, a cry of sleepiness, or a cry of something else. Wow, that is definitely above and beyond, and that's something, Nick, that you and I will not be able to ever do. Well, that's, yeah, that's probably fair. I'm not quite sure how easy it is to fly the airplane whilst you're breastfeeding, but... Uh, <laughs> um, never tried yeah. it. No, no, never. But uh, I think it's a fantastic thing. I mean, it's remarkable sometimes the uh, how kind and the links that uh, cabin crew attendants, flight attendants, have you term them, uh, will go. Um, it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely lovely. Like. I know some people would probably be a little bit offended by this. Not me, sir. Absolutely not. Mm. So anything uh, that you've done um, crazy for passengers? Well, I didn't, not really that crazy because we're usually too busy trying to sort things out. But I mean, our very last flight, uh, I mentioned we had a generator problem and uh, we knew that all the shops in the airport uh, were going to be um, closed when we uh, disembarked the passengers we knew that some wouldn't get hotels and they may not even be able to get food because restaurants were going to be closed so uh, we cooked up all the food and uh, I helped the cabin crew uh, push the trolleys uh, up into the gate area and help serve the passengers but uh, that's you know not a big thing to do uh, but you know I, I've heard of our cabin crew stepping in to do all sorts of things like uh, you know um, a passenger um, has to desperately get home and uh, a bit short of funds or there's a problem and uh, they offer them lifts so oh, I'm going that way I'll give you a lift which I think is incredibly trusting uh, but also a sweet thing to do yeah nothing crazy for me just things like uh, somebody has left an article on an airplane and I, you know, go and find out, you know, where they live and, you know, if they live somewhat near where I live, you know, I, I deliver it to their homes personally and uh, helping an old German lady um, who had inadvertently gone out through security and she needed to make a connection flight to Hawaii. Uh, and uh, so I kind of, you know, she just held on in my hand. And I said, okay, just follow me. I'm not even sure she understood what I was saying to her. 
but I, w- I ended up getting her through security very quickly and up to her gate uh, within about five minutes of the door closing. So, oh, good you know, little things oh. like that, you know. But it's just it's just being a human, you know, just trying to be good to your fellow neighbor. That's what it's all about, right? Yeah, it's very easy for us to switch off at the end of a flight, just blast through the airport fixed on getting to the car park as quickly as you can but it, you often see people bumbling around not quite sure what's happening where to go what queue to be in and just a little kind word or a bit of assistance goes a very long way you can really tell by when you see people and you just a look on their face you're going uh they, <laughs> i need to step over there and see what they need because obviously they have a, this look of confusion or panic on their face yeah and if, especially when they see somebody like Nick and I in a uniform, they think, well, here's somebody with authority and probably knows uh, something t- to help me. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so thank you, Texas Charlie, for that. And uh, continuing on 13, somebody named Liz sent this one in. Um, you have discussed mental health issues for pilots on a number of occasions, but this particular situation is an interesting one. I'd be really interested to hear your views on the entire situation and the lawsuit and ultimate decision. Thanks, crew. And this article was uh, in the independent.co.uk. Flyby pilot sacked for fear of flying wins unfair dismissal case. It goes on to say the uh, Flyby pilot who was let go after developing a fear of flying has won an unfair dismissal claim. First officer Matthew Guest had been flying with the airline for seven years when a change in aircraft and a switch to longer routes prompted him to uh, start having panic attacks. He should have been offered alternative roles and given the opportunity to to discuss his position with Flybee's COO, Luke Farayala, an employment judge ruled. And he started experiencing problems in December 2014 when he uh, was moved from flying Q400 aircraft to Embraer jets, which typically fly longer routes. Although I don't think any of them really are super long routes. But um, anyway, back to the story. He started feeling dizzy and nauseous with a, I think that should be nauseated. The uh, people that write this should know that. Journalists, come on. Nauseated reading it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll correct it. He started feeling dizzy and nauseated with a churning stomach during a flight to Florence, Italy, and began experiencing a sense of impending dread in the pit of his stomach at the thought of boarding the plane when driving to the airport. I kind of feel that sense of impending dread every time we get ready to record one of these shows, actually. Yeah, and it's it's usually borne out by the fact that it's an absolute disaster. <laughs> But let's not go there. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> he later described this feeling, uh, this as a feeling like severe butterflies or stomach cramp, Judge Tom Coughlin, QC, said in a written ruling. Uh, his medical certificate permitting him to fly was temporarily suspended after his general practitioner wrote to his superior saying he had developed an increasing phobia and anxiety about long-distance flights and being trapped on the airplane. He was signed off with anxiety and only returned to work in April 2016, but uh, CBT sessions, extra training, reduced hours, all failed to cure this gentleman of his phobia. On June 2016, things came to a head when Guest, who was scheduled to fly to Kefalonia in Greece, yeah, Kefalonia, yeah. Uh, called in sick. He had twice raised concerns about the four-hour flight with his manager, Lee Gorham, 
who suggested that during the cruise phase of the journey, the claimant might pass the time by reading a book or doing a crossword, as pilots frequently do, it says in parentheses. Uh, support free thinking journal. Oh, that's a little ad there. <laughs> Shouldn't have been in the article. Uh, his work schedule was cleared and Guest was officially let go in March 2017 in a letter from Luke Farayala. We are not prepared to take the risk of returning you as a pilot on the E-Jet or Dash 8, so we are providing you with formal notice that we intend to terminate your employment on capability grounds. Guest was offered an alternative position as a flight safety report officer based in uh, Exeter. Exeter, was, yes, that's right. Okay, uh, but was told that he would not be able to return to flying uh, if he accepted that role. The judge ruled in his favor, saying that he should have been allowed to meet with the airline's chief of operations as he was the key decision-maker in Guest's dismissal. Um, Guest now feels Flybe should reinstate him to make amends. If the airline declines, a judge will rule on the issue later this month. Um, and uh, Liz continues, uh, how much hand baggage can you take on a Ryanair flight? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that's actually <laughs> something else at the bottom of the article that <laughs> I shouldn't be reading. Um, so, wow, that, so that's an interesting one. Uh, all of a sudden, he develops this uh, interesting phobia. and I, I'm not doubting that this is something real to him. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think about this, Nick? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure I would be happy to have any uh, pilot employed in my company if he couldn't fly anything that the company does. Um, uh, so that's my number one thing. Um, my second thing is uh, it's not the company's fault if uh, he has his medical uh, withdrawn because he's got a, uh, a mental health issue. Uh, which obviously this uh, turned out to be. So uh, you you cannot blame the company for any of that. Um, however, having been treated and uh, returned to flying, uh, if since the problem obviously reoccurred, I don't I fail to see how he could maintain his medical. He had already had it. Uh, he's had his permit to fly temporarily suspended, uh, but he obviously still suffered the same symptoms. So. I'm not sure how he got it back and kept it. I, I'm not. I feel, feel that perhaps if he had been more forthcoming with his aeromedical examiner, he would have had it withdrawn a second time. Um, with regards to uh, the decision, um, the company obviously didn't have a very good HR. They didn't have Dr. Steph looking after them. Um, and yes, quite right. He should have been given access to the airline's COO, if that's uh, what was required to uh, let him talk through his problems. But I wouldn't feel comfortable flying with someone whose mental issues wouldn't allow them to even do a four-hour flight. I'm going, that, that's not good. You should be able to, if the aircraft is on a relatively short flight, but it ends up diverting and the flight time goes on, I can't have one of the pilots on the flight deck suffering extreme anxiety because the flight's going on too long. Uh, I don't feel that is fair on the airline and on the crew. Um, the fly, flybee should have allowed him to return to flying the Q400. I'm not too sure about that either. Uh, if you're employed by an airline, you should be willing and capable of flying anything in their inventory. And if the airline goes, well, you're a pilot with a license and a medical, we want you to fly this. It's not your position to go, oh, no, I don't want to fly that. I'm going to fly this. 
Um, and if you, because if you can't fly that for whatever reason, then I don't think that is unfair. That's fair on the company. So I, I personally don't agree with the uh, um, judge's opinion here. And bear in mind, I've had my own mental issues, so I do look at this with a huge amount of sympathy. But my sympathy only stretches so far. I was treated for my depression, got over it, and flew. Um, afterwards without any problem whatsoever on varying types etc etc now if this chap still had a problem as he obviously seemed to uh, i'm not sure that the company should have allowed him to fly uh, even on an airplane he said oh this airplane doesn't give me any problems um no guarantee of that the company were quite <laughs> say they got rid of that airplane exactly and they only had the other version so what do you do then um, so yeah, I, I've enormous amount of sympathy for him, uh, because dealing with these conditions is never easy. Uh, and if it brings your career to a premature end, that's a bloody nightmare. So I do feel sorry for him, but I also have in this case, sympathy with the airline. I do as well. And they did offer him an alternative position as a flight safety support officer. Yeah. So it wasn't as if they just said, well, you know, if you can't fly all of our types, then you're out of here. I mean, they gave him kind of an out, but I guess that was unacceptable to him. Yeah. Uh, well, it might be interesting to follow this up and see what the uh, uh, judge rules subsequently and whether the uh, airline appeals. It would be. Liz, let's keep track of this, see what the uh, outcome is. Thank you for uh, submitting that, and uh, thank you for your questions, Liz. And uh, yeah, finally... Oh, finally. Yes, I think this will be our last one. Sean writes in, what's that smell? Where's Captain Al? <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's kind of unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Passengers on a Suryaya. <laughs> oh my God, they even asked me to try that one. Suryaya air flight, uh, an Indonesian airline were so overwhelmed by a foul smell on the plane they refused to fly, demanding the crew let them off the aircraft shortly after boarding. Uh, Sean writes, was Captain L in the cockpit? Nope. <laughs> just, to, again, that's unfair, very unfair. Uh, just two tons of durian in the cargo hold? Oh, God, yes. Oh, that stuff stinks. So um, apparently it's the world's stinkiest fruit. Yeah, have you ever eaten it? No. Oh, it tastes delicious, yeah. but it stinks to high heaven. It r smells of rotting, foul, disgusting things that you wouldn't get anywhere near your mouth. If you manage to get past that and put the fruit in your mouth, it's it's lovely. It's kind of <laughs> like pawpaw or um, you know mango-ish, but it's it's quite a unique taste. But it is it is very nice. But it, you've just got to overcome this appalling reek that the, uh, the fruit gives out. Um, so it's quite an art of holding your nose and, and stick it in, sticking it in your mouth. But at uh, some point you have to let go of your nose uh, because you won't be able to taste anything, right? That's, well, I think you can taste, I know your smell holds a lot of, uh, yeah. taste, uh, factors, but no, I think you can taste a bit, but no, you're right. You do have to let go of your nose and people who love it. And there are a lot of people in, uh, that part of the world who do who eat durian all the time, um, yeah, they, they I think they just they just turn off to it. Well, 
uh, food writer Richard Sterling has written, its odor is best described as turpentine or turpentine and onions garnished with a gym sock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does not okay. sound appetizing at all. It's not. No, it doesn't smell appetizing. Wow. Apparently they, um, the passengers kind of revolted and they agreed to remove the two tons of durian off the uh, flight. And uh, wow. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. And with that, it's a shame, but we have to uh, stop today's show. We are uh, pretty close to about the three-hour mark uh, right now. So uh, if you want to learn more about the great APG community and the crew and uh, other things, head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And we have apps for your iPhone and your Android devices. They're on the appropriate app stores, and they're free and ad-free and make your experience uh, interacting with the APG community uh, even easier. And uh, we're also on social media. Yeah, if you want to uh, catch us on Twitter, then give us the handle, uh, or attract our attention with the handle at APG Crew. And, of course, we're on uh, Facebook and that's uh, the standard um, intro for Facebook, you know, the standard preamble, uh, which is www.facebook.com forward slash airline pilot guy. And you'll find our page there, which Liz and I often uh, look at. And not only all that, but we are also on Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. That was Steph. Bye, everybody. That was me. Good day.